Hello, everyone. Welcome to Chrononauts, a science fiction literature history podcast. I'm Gretchen, and I'm joined here with my co-hosts, Nate and JM. How are you both doing tonight? I'm doing pretty good. Definitely excited to talk about some meta-podcast topics. Yes. Yeah. It's been a bit oh, of a stressful week, but, you know, we can mm. unwind talking about some of our favorites of the year and some other cool stuff we've been checking out. Yeah, I'm doing okay. Uh, it's it's getting close to uh, what I consider my least favorite time of the year. It's kind of like the end of December, January. I don't know. It, ever since I was younger, I don't know when it started happening. At first, you're in school and you look forward to the holidays and then you go to work and you look forward to the holidays if you get them. But there's always just quite a bit of stress involved, I guess. So it's kind of like nice to have this at the end of, I think around last year, we did this kind of bonus type episode at the end of the year too. And it's nice to kind of have this to unwind and try to work out a new job and financial situation and all this stuff. So it's just like been a little tricky, but doing okay. And I have a few cool things I want to bring up, so, and artistic-related things, books, movies, music, all that good stuff. That stuff that keeps life interesting and keeps us uh, engaged, so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I have one week left, almost. Well, basically, there's another project I have due next week, but this last week is kind of, most of my finals are wrapping up, so I just have to get through this, and then I have a nice break for a little bit. Yeah, that'll be good. And you guys just had your Thanksgiving break a couple weeks ago, right? Yes. Yeah. It wasn't really that much of a break for me. Mm. (laughs) We had a dog here that was basically at death's door and required a lot of work. Is that when you flew out? You flew out of town, right? Or something? No, I I, I was here the whole time. Oh, okay. Yeah. But yeah, (laughs) it was a challenge. Emergency measures. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. We're recording this uh, now in early December. We were talking last time about recording the episode for Octavia Butler's Kindred, and we are going to do that still. We haven't decided exactly when we're going to record it yet, but that'll be coming next for sure. I don't want to talk about it too much here, but I think we all read the book. and mm-hmm. Yep. And yeah, I really liked it, so it's going to be interesting to talk about. Yes. We made a list of our top and bottom sort of entries of the, the 49 stories that we read this year and i kind of contemplated whether i wanted to include that on my list and then i thought well we didn't talk about it yet so it's probably stay off till next year but yeah i don't know what order you guys kind of want to do some things in but we have we have a very loose-knit kind of agenda about it but why don't we uh well why don't we start by talking about what we've all been consuming then lately yeah, sure. I've been doing a fair amount of reading outside the podcast on audiobook primarily. I just finished up with a reread of Lord of the Rings on audiobook. Prior to that, I had done Dickens, Our Mutual Friend. And it's kind of interesting doing various works back to back because there's always like these weird coincidences between the two. Yeah. There, there's some names that are in common between Our Mutual Friend and Lord of the Rings. It just kind of makes you wonder if Tolkien had read that particular work and had it in the back of his head somewhere. Likewise, I just started the Tolkien translation of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight mm-hmm. on audiobook. And the phrase Middle Earth is used a couple times in Sir Gawain. So, you know, again, it makes you wonder. Well, I mean, I would always kind of thought he got that from like Midgard or something, right? Yeah. Which is the Norse concept of the Middle Earth being the, the part of the nine worlds that we live on i guess so 
That's kind of where I thought he got it from. So it didn't surprise me that he used it again, but also I wouldn't be surprised to see other people kind of use that terminal as well. But that's that's really interesting. I have a, a life kind of history with Lord of the Rings, but it's not something that I've reread since I was very young. And actually, my dad read me that trilogy when when I was pretty small. We started with The Hobbit, and then we kind of went straight on to Lord of the Rings. And it took a long time. It took a long time, you know, to read through the trilogy because my dad and I probably didn't, for different reasons, didn't have the patience to read like more than a chapter a night or something like that. So it took a while, but we we eventually finished it. And I'd never reread it. And I've thought about it a few times, especially since the first band that I joined was like really inspired by Tolkien. It's kind of like a black metal, Tolkien inspired black metal sounding kind of Norse-ish. And kind of got me interested again. But I didn't, instead of rereading it, I just listened to the 13-part BBC radio series, Mm. which is pretty cool. It's a full-blown dramatization, but they also throw in, like, the songs that Tolkien has in there. Like, somebody, I guess, composed music for the songs. And there's some pretty good established performers in there, like, I believe David Collings, who plays Silver and Sapphire Steel and is in some Doctor Who and Blake 7. He plays yeah. Aragorn. Is that his name? Aragorn? Strider? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. There's some interesting parallels with the movies because Ian Holm plays Frodo. And he plays Bilbo in the Lord of Rings movie. I'm, I'm not sure who plays Bilbo Baggins in The Hobbit, but I, it's not him, obviously. But. No, yeah, the guy who plays Bilbo Baggins in The Hobbit. I forget his name, but he plays... Tim on the UK office. He's in a oh, whole bunch uh, of Martin Martin something. Yeah, I, isn't I, he in the Fargo show? He's as well, in the Fargo like... show. That's right. Oh, yeah, okay. yes, uh, Martin Freeman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I never saw the Hobbit movies. The Lord of the Rings movies, I think, are the Peter Jackson ones are pretty good. Yeah, but yeah, the audiobook is cool. I the the narrator of this one, Robert Ingalls, also does the songs. <laughs> yeah, I kind, kind, <laughs> nice. kind of feel bad for the guy because there's like a song every chapter, so he's got to make up a melody for it. Well, maybe somebody told him what to say. Yeah, it's, it's possible. If it, if it is, I mean, there's been times when, I mean, I used to read aloud to my former partner all the time, and there were there were certain cases, especially in like like the first Liber, uh Falford and Mouser stories, and in Gene Wolf Book of the New Sod, and different times where, where I had to make up a melody too. That was fun. <laughs> so, yeah, but it's kind of cool when the uh, audiobook narrators go all out like that. You know, they actually put in a little bit of extra effort there to make it more of a performance. I, I always appreciate that. I mean, I, I figure why listen to an audiobook if you're not going to appreciate something like that, you know, like right. make it a bit of acting, not just I'm reading a book, but... Yeah, the movies were cool. I mean, I, I enjoyed them, but every single adaptation leaves out the, the scouring of the Shire part. It does, yeah. It, it takes a like, weird veering into Irish republicanism at the end, which, which I, think, I think the chapter is great. But you could definitely see for practical reasons why the Peter Jackson movies left it out, because it's basically another hour and a half movie right there at the very end of what's already an extremely long movie. So... It's unfortunate, but I could see why they did it. I suppose so. I I, I feel like it kind of is an important part of the story. It is. Though. Yeah. And I like Saruman's fate in the book a lot more than the movie. I thought the his yeah. death in the movie was... Christopher Lee was not happy about that either. Apparently. No, he wasn't. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, apparently he didn't talk to Peter Jackson for like a decade. 
Yeah. Yeah, I heard that. He made a pretty nice tribute to Christopher Lee, though, after he died. And he said that they had made up, at least. So Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I read a few books uh, in the last few months. Sometimes sometimes I, I don't read that much besides the podcast stuff, depending on how I feel about time and stuff like that. And, and you know, how close to the wire we are. Because I, I do read... I tend to read kind of slow a lot of the time, although sometimes when I'm really into stuff, I don't, and then that's how I can tell that I'm really into something, because I kind of devote all this time to reading it, but but I read a few uh, kind of, like, I guess you could call them crime books. One is this book called Run by Douglas E. Winter, and I'm not sure when this book was published, but I'm guessing 90s, and it, it kind of feels like it must take place in the 90s as well, but it's kind of a, it takes place in Washington, D.C., and it's all about gangbangers and gun runners and stuff like that and it's pretty violent but i enjoyed it it's it, it was kind of thing where the style just kind of intrigued me enough that i kept going and there were a couple of times where I'm, I'm kind of questioned like oh where is he going with this why am i reading it it's just a bunch of like guys knocking each other off and stuff like that but then i kind of started to see that there was a, a greater purpose behind it and it was kind of like there was a lot of social commentary in there there was like some race issues brought up and the fact that most of it takes place in, in Washington, D.C., which is the U.S.'s capital, obviously, and it's like considered to be a pretty, I don't know, it's its like, it's got a pretty notorious urban gang problem, I guess, and or at least it did have. And so, you know, and it kind of felt very authentic. I was a little surprised because Douglas Winter, I thought I was considered a horror writer, so I was expecting something quite different. But it had some of those, it certainly was very tense. And it had some real, like, suspenseful moments and stuff. And the the main character is, he knows everything possible about guns. And he works for some people that are running guns to various organizations and gangs and stuff like that. And uh, it's very crooked. And he kind of discovers, you know, he's got this, like, a bit of a suave, smart-ass, kind of badass narrative voice. But he kind of discovers that, that his life is, is a sham and, and people have been duping him and his girlfriend is uh an undercover cop and all this stuff it's it's it's, it's bad <laughs> it's bad but it was a fun book and it was a quick read so and i enjoyed that then i read an older sort of kind of tied in with crime stories as well but it wasn't quite that it was a book written by gerald kirsch called the song of the flea mm-hmm. and i've been into gerald kirsch probably since i don't know Sometime in the 2010s, I guess, I read a few short stories, and I really liked them. And then I read a couple of novels a few years ago, Prelude to a Certain Midnight and Night in the City, which I first saw the movie, uh, Night in the City. It's kind of a, a 1950s, late 40s noir-type film. It's one of the rare instances of a film like that set in England, even though it was actually an American production, I think. But it had a lot of English actors in it, and... The film is really good, but the book is much darker and goes to much more troubling places, but it's also a lot funnier. Gerald Kirsch kind of has this, it's very English, but apparently he did most of his writing after he moved to uh, the United States and he spent most, uh, he spent a lot of time in Quebec as well. So Song of the Flea is almost a sequel to Night in the City. It's, it involves one of the same characters. It doesn't come in until like over halfway through the book. He's this con man, pimp type character called Harry Fabian, who's played by Richard Widmark in the Night in the City film. 
and he's a really nasty character. In the, the film, he's a little bit endearing, but in the book, there's not really that much endearing about him. He's just nasty. Huh. But Richard Whitmark, he wanted to play heroes. He didn't really like playing bad guys, apparently, so I don't know how much that had to do with it. But Anyway, so Song of the Flea is mostly about a struggling writer, though, so it's kind of interesting because a couple of the reviews I read of the book compared it to Charles Bukowski, who I just had my first exposure to this year as well having read Ham on Rye. And I would say that the Kirsch book is a lot more to my taste, even though I didn't mind the Bukowski. It was kind of fun, but well, there was all kind of gratuitous stuff in there and weird sex kind of hang-ups and whatnot. So I don't know, but the Kirsch was very witty. It was very fun. He just has this really hilarious way of, of exposing the grotesquerie of everyday life, especially on the seedier side of the English urban landscape in the 1930s and 40s. And it's really funny at times. There's there's some chapters that are just super memorable because of the way he puts things in the dialogue. There's a lot of crazy cockney talking and stuff like that. And I really had fun with it. I didn't want it to end. It ended too fast, (laughs) even though it wasn't wasn't exactly a short book. But uh, it was a lot of fun. A couple of other things. I... Didn't finish this one yet, but I started reading the book City Infernal by Edward Lee, which is kind of a splatterpunk novel. I enjoyed the first part. It was it was really over the top, and it had this like eighteen year old goth girl main character, and it was kind of like she was actually really well portrayed. I thought, and and it was you know there was some neat gothic touches, even though it's very very much like splatterpunk and and kind of over the top gore and violence and stuff. But it kind of took this different turn uh, halfway through and now the characters are in hell and that's kind of interesting but he's kind of made it he doesn't know what a lot of other older authors did and turned it into this kind of like decadent urban sprawl so like hell is basically like what we imagine uh, a cityscape gone to rot and like you know everything is evil and twisted and like but it's kind of a lot like the world we know now just more satanic and evil and (laughs) Which is kind of interesting, but it's not as interesting to me as the first part, maybe. So I kind of slowed down with that. I had a couple of other things going, too. So a friend of mine sent a couple of things for me to read. And she's a writer. Might as well mention her name on here, but the stuff is not published yet. Uh, She's hoping that the first book, Paulus, will be published in May or June. As soon as the cover's worked out, I guess. Her name is Lisa Kosnak. And this is pretty much science fiction stuff. The first book, Palace, is a shorter novel. Could be considered a novella by some people, I guess. But I think it's, I don't know, it's, it seems long enough to be called a novel. And she described it to me as The Wicker Man Meets Solaris. Now, I didn't really see a lot of Solaris in there necessarily, although it was a bit. The Wicker Man, definitely, though. And there's quite a bit of body horror as well. It's kind of about this space trucker, kind of cargo ship guy who gets uh, stranded. And has to land on this, his ship gets damaged, and he has to land on this asteroid that used to be used for mining, and nobody's heard anything from it from for several decades, and finds out that under this dome there's this community thriving, and everything seems great and rather idyllic, but of course there's a hidden underbelly of dark secrets, and it gets, you know, gets pretty heavy with the body horror and weirdness. Definitely likable, and... The other book she sent me is also really good, but I won't really say anything about that one because that one will probably come quite a bit later. But it's interesting to me because this stuff definitely seems good enough 
I don't know how to say this, but it's it seems like it definitely deserves to be published. And, you know, I've seen a lot of stuff done by professional publishing companies that is not that great. And just learning about the, the troubles somebody has to go through to get their work out there and right. after shopping it to so many different venues and stuff like that and getting turned down in a lot of places, it's kind of interesting to me. You know, it kind of feels a bit like sent me down a bit of a rabbit hole too just sort of discovering how how much i guess literary agents and and publisher marketing executives and stuff are concerned with what's going on in the market and the trends and how much they have to appeal to certain types of audiences and what to do to get amazon to notice your books and stuff like that and having the right keywords and and all that magical stuff <laughs> that everyone has to consider nowadays yeah it's interesting stuff but Aside from that, you know, mostly short stories, as usual, because I always sometimes just just have to read short stories to, I guess, keep my mind sort of fresh. You know, just, just read something small at night or something or first thing in the morning when I wake up. It's always felt kind of good to me, and it's a good way to get exposed to uh, authors that you wouldn't otherwise read, as I think we've mentioned on here before. So I've been reading a lot of Brian Lumley short stories. He's a horror writer who's well-known for the Necroscope story uh, series in the 80s. Some pretty good short stories, sometimes quite Lovecraft-influenced, sometimes more influenced by, like, Arthur Machen and stuff. A little bit of science fiction, too. So. Good stuff. But, yeah, that's mostly what I've been reading, anyway. What about you, Gretchen? Yeah, well, for most of my reading, it has been for class, and a lot of that has been theory. I, yeah. I'm in the middle of a gender and sexuality class, so there's been quite a bit of, you know, Judith Butler and, right. you know, some of the other, like, cornerstones of, like, 90s queer theory that we've been reading. And I, I'm also taking a post-colonial literature class, and we, we covered some theory in that, too, uh, like Franz Fanon, which has been interesting. As for fiction, I, I read a couple of interesting fiction works in post-colonial, including the one I just finished a final on was called Season of Migration to the North, which is by a Sudanese writer named Tayeb Sali, which was really good. It was published by one of my favorite publishing companies, which is New York Review Books. I, I always like their editions. They uncover a lot of untranslated or, you know, lost works. And that was one that we had to read for the class. And it was it was an interesting novel about, like, this clash that a lot of post-colonial subjects feel between, like, the colonized culture and the colonizer culture. Really cool. And we also read Annie John by Jamaica Kincaid, which I had read... I think it was last last year in the last fall we had to read another like short work by her in a history class and reading a longer work was cool I, I liked her fiction there I know she also has a story in in the weird that I yeah, I really does. need to check out girl I believe so I, I should check that one out because I I'm interested to see what something that's a little more non literary you know more of a genre piece would be like from her. Besides that, I did read a couple of works in my free time, although the work that I'm reading now, which is The Only Good Indians by uh, Stephen Joan, Gr Jones Grant. Yeah, Stephen, Stephen Graham, Graham Jones. Jones. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, you finally but, uh, started that one. Cool. Yeah, I, I ended up starting it. It's been going very slow. <laughs> I'm only about halfway through and I started quite a while ago. 
hopefully after this week I'll finally get to finish it. But I have been enjoying it so far. It's it's intriguing to me. Over October, I did read Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. Yeah, which, that was cool. uh, Yeah, I, I like that one a lot. And I, I also watched the film adaptation that was made of it in like the 80s. And the director, I, I only realized after I had watched it, also did The Innocence, um, which is another good film that I really like. Oh, yeah. I also read Tender is the Flesh by Augustina Bazterica, which was really brutal and really good. Quite a messed up book, but I really liked it. Most of the stuff I've been consuming has been... I've finally gotten around some television series that I've been meaning to watch. One of them, which I had, had a chance to get through during Thanksgiving break, was Our Flag Means Death, which I heard about... I think back in like May or June of this year, and I've been meaning to watch it and kept putting it off until one of my professors actually was talking about it in class, and I thought maybe I should check it out, and really enjoyed it. And after that, because it stars Taika Waititi, and I've been wanting to, I've I've already liked quite a few of the films I've seen by him. I also recently started watching What We Do in the Shadows. Which is very funny because uh, I'm pretty sure we mentioned that in our bonus episode yeah. last year. Finally got yeah. around to it, and it's it's very funny. I really enjoy it so far. Cool. Yeah, there's I, definitely I, some I, funny moments in the show and the film too. Yes, um, they, they kind yeah. of overlap in interesting ways. Yeah, um, yeah. Matthew Berry's a great actor, and he's just mm. fantastic in that. And Garth Marenghi's Dark Place is one of my favorite shows. Oh, Matt Berry's in that as well. Yeah, yeah, he is. Oh man, because I I've, I yeah. have not seen that yet, but I've been meaning to watch it so. Now that I know that Matt Berry's in it, I I have more of an incentive to check that out. Yeah, if you've ever seen the IT crowd, there's a bunch of other familiar actors that you'll recognize in Dark mm. Place as well. Cool. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. it's really good. Yeah, it sounds it sounds interesting. I guess uh, you should probably watch the movie first, though, I'm guessing. For what we do in the shadows? Yeah. It, it doesn't really matter, I don't think. Yeah, I, I haven't gotten to the episode. I think that uh, Taika Waititi and the other actors that are in what we do in the shadows the film like star in the series or make an appearance yeah but... they have a brief role okay. but it's, it's like okay. very small and, okay and, and basically like a lot of the plot scenarios that are in the film they reuse for the show they just localize it in staten island not new zealand mm-hmm. uh, oh i see okay so, yeah they, they, they kind of tie together i mean there's like winks and nods to one another in the tv show but mm-hmm. you don't need to watch one to understand the other i don't think oh yeah yeah, like so far, I, 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 what I've seen, it doesn't seem connected. Although I did see the the cameo, so I wasn't sure if it ended up di- like uh, converging with the the film. Yeah, no, not really. They they kind of okay. show up briefly, but uh... yeah, I've heard of Annie John and Tender is the Flesh. Annie John, actually, I uh, listened to a podcast about that just because mm-hmm. I was listening to their episodes. And it's called the Sophomore Lit Podcast. They just talk about stuff that people are likely to read in school, and it could be anything from early childhood to like ulysses it's it literally could be any of those and so it's kind of an interesting sort of you never quite know what it's going to be but the host has a different guest for every you know every book that they cover so it's it's always a, a little bit different and interesting and so i i was listening to their episode on that and because i'd heard of jamaica kincaid and uh, the book sounds pretty cool i, I kind of like to read it sometimes so yeah 
Yeah, I think A Season of Migration to the North was my favorite book that we read, but after oh, that yeah. was, I did really like Annie John. And Nate, you read The, the Hearing Trumpet recently. Yes, yes, I did. I really like that one a lot. Um, mm. It's from 1974 by Leonora Carrington, who I think is a pretty well-known author, or at least I've seen the name around before mm. I read this. And It seems like she's one of those authors that maybe wasn't very well-known in the yeah. English-speaking world till recently. Yeah, I feel like kind of like a, a renaissance is starting up around her. I know that the collected stories of her was published like in 2016, which are also very good. I recommend that that collection, but I feel like after that those came out, she kind of gained quite a bit of popularity. Well, she certainly deserves it, and I'll definitely have to check out mm-hmm. those short stories. Maybe mm-hmm. if I could find like a dual language edition or something like that, that'd be interesting to yeah. check out. But she's got one in the weird too. That's really good. Yeah. Oh yeah. White rabbits. Yeah, definitely have to check that one out because this one was great, and I read it on both your recommendations. So mm. um, I, I know you guys really liked it as well. Yeah, I, I thought it was great. I, I thought the ending was kind of like okay, you know. I mean, I I didn't. I don't know. It's a funny thing with me and endings. Sometimes I I like <laughs> I have trouble with the way things end. I just kind of I like the way. I think this will come up again later when we're talking about our podcast picks. But I I just like the way the journey goes. But sometimes. <laughs> At the end, I'm just kind of left feeling like, huh, okay, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting deconstruction on the hero quest itself. Mm. Oh, yeah. And uh, the way she does it is she juxtaposes the main character, who is an elderly woman suffering from dementia, mm. and who shitty family just sticks her in a nursing home because they want to get rid of her. Yeah. But as her dementia progresses, the events of the novel get increasingly more surreal and detached from reality, and it's just a really great take on... The hero quest. My favorite part of the book, though, and I think I said this to you before, Nate, but my favorite part of the book, well, is that part where she gets handed a book from this, like, 13th century, talking about, like, this 13th century nunnery. Yeah. And, and like, there's, you know, the bishop and the mother superior who are actually, like, Satanists or something like that. And it totally reminded me of some really crazy nun exploitation film or something like that. But yeah. with, like, more weird touches like if if that had been made into a non-exploitation movie it would be the most awesome one ever made you know like (laughs) i love that part (laughs) yeah there's quite a few of those films some are better than others obviously but uh (laughs) uh, alicarda is certainly one of my favorites i really like flavia the heretic yeah I don't know if you've seen that one. Yeah, yeah. my wife just watched a whole bunch of those, including Flavia. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Some some of them are are ones you don't want to necessarily want to admit to watching, but... (laughs) Yeah. There's a couple (laughs) Jess Franco ones that are, you know, (laughs) basically just pornography. Um, Love letters of a Portuguese nun. Exactly. Yeah, that's the one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. Here in Trumpet was great, and it's certainly weird enough that... I think our listeners who are interested in some of the weird fiction, odd Latin American spiritualist titles would really be into this one. As she mm-hmm. has a really excellent prose style, and there's cool illustrations, and just like a really neat vibe overall, yeah. um, in addition to the occult stuff. Yeah, I, I really love her style. She has that kind of like dry style where like there's all this crazy stuff going on. It feels still very like mentioned in a very offhand way, and it's something that you see in quite a bit of her of her fiction. 
It's not them very funny, too. Yes, she she's is. a very funny writer. Yeah, yeah, she is. And I, I read this in one sitting, cover to cover. Um, oh, nice. So it just like totally engrossed me. It ran fast. I really couldn't put it down. Yeah, yeah I read it pretty quickly, too. One of the first works that I, I read by her, because I first discovered the collected stories just online, and I looked inside the book and read, like, the first story, which is only, I think, like, eight pages or so. Mm -hmm. And it's called The Debutante. And it's, like, about this young girl who doesn't want to go to, like, this fancy party being thrown for her. And so... uh she has befriended this hyena that lives at the zoo and she has taught her to speak French and she gets the hyena to come out of the zoo that she releases her so that she can go in her stead. And it's a really crazy story, but I, I remembered reading it and thinking I have to read more of this yeah. writer. Yeah. And she did actually write a lot of her stuff in French, didn't she? Yeah. I think she wrote French and Spanish that she kind of like switched between the two. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Kind of like Louis, uh, Louis Boonwell's films there. Mm. Certainly if you have the language skills, it's interesting to go back and forth. Mm. Um, I guess in regards to a different kind of hearing trumpet, we covered Florence McLanberg's story, The Automaton Ear. Ah, yes. Back mm. in episode seven. And that's a really cool early example of using technology to reconstruct the past. In this particular case, it's being able to tune into any sound that was existent on Earth at any given point in time. But it was anthologized in her 1876 collection, The Automaton Ear and Other Stories. So I read the other stories in that book, which are mostly moody gothic sketches, but it has a one-star rating on Goodreads, or at least did. And it seems like almost nobody has read these in the modern era, or at least bothered to rate and review them on Goodreads. And while they're certainly not masterpieces, and I think Automaton Ear really is the best one in the collection, it's certainly way better than a one-star book. I mean, if you're in the mood for some moody gothic stuff, they're all pretty quick. And if not total masterpieces, just fairly enjoyable for that kind of mood and vibe. But yeah. Automaton Ear has certainly made its way around anthologies a whole bunch. I think it's appeared in at least two, possibly three, that we've encountered in the research for the podcast. Yeah, I think so. It's in one of these... Uh early women science fiction anthologies, definitely. Yeah. I like that story, but it's kind of funny. I, I, I guess there were sort of two parts of me reading it, you know, the part that's just like, yeah, we're not going to really get any info about this. Like, just feel the atmosphere, feel the the pathos of it and everything. And the other part of me was going, well, it's neat. She's describing this device. How the hell does it work, though? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just like the, the science fiction part. Like, I'm not... I'm not one of those people who reads sci-fi to be like all critical of the science, maybe because, you know, I don't know a ton about science. So I don't feel like I'm really in a position to criticize somebody for having bad physics. But there's the part of me that uh, it's not so much the science, but I, I want to know how the things work. You know, like I do want to know how it works. And <laughs> she's very vague on that kind of thing, obviously, because it's just not that kind of story. So right. it's kind of a funny experience. So, like, how does he tune in on any sound? Like, <laughs> how does he find, like, anything? <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, the, the nitpicking of mechanics of things like that in stories, I think, can be particularly funny. I mean, we'll talk more about Kindred next time, but a couple of Goodreads reviews or people are upset that she doesn't explain the time travel mechanism. It's like, you really missed the entire point of the story, oh. didn't you? Um, <laughs> but I guess another thing that I read, which we were going to cover for the podcast, I decided to jump ship on and pull it off. 
the podcast agenda. And I figure we'll talk a bit about it now because I did put a fair amount of work into this one and it would at least be worthwhile to get something out there and why we decided to abandon this one. So this one is a story by a Catalan author named Antoni Carreta y Vidal. And the story is The Accusing Eye. And it had been cited in the Science Fiction Encyclopedia entry on Catalan Science Fiction, which is really quite detailed and has several interesting sounding titles in it. And this one in particular stuck out as it mentions optography, which is a cool pseudoscience. We'll talk about it in a bit. But since it seemed of reasonable length and we are able to find a reprint of it in the June 1982 issue of Ciencia, which is a Catalan language science publication that apparently also printed fiction from time to time, I figured it might be a good candidate for translation and covering on the podcast. So I'd consider myself at B2 level in Spanish, and I feel like with dictionary help, I can work my way through some other Romance languages like Italian, which I did previously without too much effort. And I'd spent about an hour or so poking through the Catalan course on Duolingo to get an idea of how close it was to Spanish and figured it wouldn't be too much of a challenge. And oh man, was I totally wrong. (laughs) Because this was a very, very difficult work to translate. And I'm not sure if it's Carreta y Vidal's prose that's being more prone to idioms, the fact that his Catalan is a bit different than modern Catalan, or if the Catalan language itself is just full of phrases that are difficult to render into English. But Catalan's superficial similarities to Spanish, at least in the case of this story, are just that, superficial. It definitely lulled me into a very false sense of security here, as this is by far the hardest time I had with a non-English story. And I do think it would be possible for me to get out something readable, but I just really did not like the ending of this story at all. And it made me not want to put in any more effort, which at this point where it's at would be a really significant amount. So to not waste all the work that I put in at this point and to avoid making you guys read a story that not only I didn't like, but it would be rough to read in draft form, I figured we'll just briefly cover it here. So Carita E. Vidal was a Catalan author who was born in 1843 and died in 1924. And he was quite varied in his writing career, doing drama, poetry, nonfiction, translations, and so forth. But he was very much a strong proponent of the Catalan language and culture. And in particular, had a strong disagreement with the orthography norms that were proposed by a Pompeu Fabra Epoch. And these norms were eventually adopted in 1936. And as this story was written in 1905, and with Vidal's personal disagreements with Fabra y Poque, the Catalan used in the story uses a lot of archaic spellings that aren't consistent with modern Catalan. Likewise, uses a bunch of what the republishers call Castilianisms, or phrases derived from Spanish. Vidal wrote four novels in the 1880s, and this particular story is considered to be one of the first science fiction stories in Catalan, which is a label I might take some umbrage with in a bit, but... I don't know. It was just very difficult to translate as the idioms and phrases resembled. I mean, I could understand what he was getting at, but trying to render them into something that resembles readable, unstilted English is just like a really steep task. For something like the Holmberg that we did, 
I just kind of rolled with it as it's such a weird, strange metaphysical story that the strangeness in the English prose doesn't really matter as much. And since Haywood Ferreira's translated excerpts of it were materially different than mine, I just kind of rolled with it. But this one is more grounded down to earth and in much more familiar scenarios. So I don't know. I think it would need to be more readable and less surrealistically strange than like this metaphysical voyage on Mars. So let's just briefly take a look at the plot of this one. And we can see not only why I didn't like it, but why it's maybe not science fiction. But here goes. So there's murder in Barcelona. A woman is found dead in the Jardin de General, a Maria Cabanas y Armengol. And her cousin Ramon is our main character, more or less anyway. And he's quite distressed about her death. The autopsy says it's an aneurysm of the aorta, but the newspapers inflame rumors of foul play. But since no evidence for anything emerges, the case just kind of goes cold and sits there. So Ramon pays a visit to the local judge and tells him he has evidence of foul play, dramatically throwing down a series of photographs. And Ramon says that they were taken from Maria's irises, the last impression of what she saw right before she died can be translated to photographic material revealing who the killer is. And this technique is called optography, which was a pseudoscience that was popular at the time as it appears in several novels from authors we've read, in particular V.A.'s Claire Lenoir, as well as Tribulat Bonhomet, Rudyard yeah. Kipling's At the End of the Passage, and Jules Verne's The Brothers Kip. I've seen it in a few uh, films as well. Yeah, right. Like, in, in, even, like, up till the 70s. Yeah, so that's where I recognize it from. I hadn't read any of these novels, but the Dario Argento film, Four Flies on Grey Velvet, Yeah, it's not one of his best, but it does have some cool, like, deep purple-type rock and music on the soundtrack. Yeah, I like that part. Yeah. The main character was a drummer in a program. Yeah, thing, exactly, so, right. Uh, but it uses this technique to finger who the killer is and, you know, all that. But in this particular story... Ramon's photographs are pretty blurry and the judge can't make anything out of them. Ramon says he took the eyes out of Maria's corpse and performed this procedure on them, which makes the judge quite uneasy, and he has Ramon arrested. The policemen are Spanish-speaking, and it's interesting to note the linguistic differences, which are pointed out a few times in text. Even though the entire story is written in Catalan, Vidal will note that the conversation of the police is happening in Spanish or that a certain tabloid newspaper wrote something in Spanish or something like that. So we then get the backstory on Ramon. He's an eccentric med school student interested in the occult, spiritualism, that kind of thing. And he's earned the nickname Dr. Nostradamus from his peers. Nice. And there's this whole subplot with a lackey of his that we'll just skip over. But while in jail, Ramon is madly scrawling stuff on the walls of his cell, trying to make himself appear insane telling anything to anyone who will listen to him in the newspapers. And the newspapers publish these really sensationalist articles about the case that garner him a lot of sincere sympathy from the public. And this has the effect of greatly annoying the judge. And after Ramon is evaluated by a few psychiatric doctors who determine that he's not insane, so the judge wants to keep him locked up, but Ramon escapes and sends the judge a threatening letter. So the letter fingers a Urantz Virgili as the murderer, and as there's no trace of Ramon, he completely disappears from the authorities. So at this point, it sounds pretty cool, right? 
We get this yeah. wild med student on the fringe of science named Dr. Nostradamus. It sounds pretty great. Persecuted by the law. Yeah. There's some humor. There's some really nice descriptions of Barcelona. And now there's a criminal on the run defying all the authorities. So why did I hate this so much? So let's continue. Virgili is summoned by the judge. And while it takes him a while to get there, he tells the judge what really happened. In Santa Eularia, a small coastal town with a population of about 30,000 in the modern era, Virgili meets Maria, who is a poor woman working as a teacher, and he falls in love with her. The two get involved in a romantic relationship, but when he moves to Barcelona, the big city, he realizes that she's just a small town girl, and there's much more beautiful women in the big city. So he just ghosts her, and it breaks her heart. And Virgili marries somebody else. And while Maria is writing impassioned letters to him asking why he abandoned her, he finally decides to come clean to her in Barcelona. And the two meet, and as he does, she just dies on the spot of a broken heart. So that's what really happens with Eurance. So what's all this deal with optography? Well, it turns out Ramon was just a dick all along and forged everything as a way to get revenge on Virgili and the judge's suspicions were right the whole time. Ramon isn't heard from again until his lackey learns that he joined up with an Italian revolutionary band under Garibaldi, and a bullet kills him in the Battle of the Volturno, which took place on October 1st of 1860, where about 300 of Garibaldi's men were killed. The end. Wow. Uh, so, huh. yeah. <laughs> I, I was really on board with this until, like, the last... 20% where it just turns into crap. It's and like... I, I have no idea why it took that direction that it did, but yeah. the ending left such a sour taste in my mouth that I'm just like, I don't want to spend the work cleaning up this really rough draft and trying yeah. to get at the heart of these Catalan phrases. A real 180. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> That's too bad, really. Yeah, because this could have been cool, but again, science fiction, I don't know. The highest level of science involved here is like forgery and i mean we see that in sherlock holmes stories so if this is science fiction then yeah so we did that we did kind of that in adams of of claudney by uh mr welpley there yeah yeah that involved like higher tech that was way more science fiction yeah right yeah so yeah that was this one (laughs) the translation was an interesting process because man the it really did kick my ass trying to get through some yeah. of these texts. Well, you know, I mean, most, you know, average speakers of any language would not really be up to doing a, a, a translation of a work. And here we are, like, your efforts in, in translating some of the Russian and Spanish stuffs previously has been, you know, it's been really cool, but mm-hmm. it's definitely a challenge. Oh, yeah. And without any real familiarity with the Catalan idioms and stuff like that, I'm sure it was exceedingly difficult and probably frustrating to kind of realize that the last 20% was going to kill all our enthusiasm. (laughs) I don't know. It was kind of a fun challenge because, I mean, it does, the language, bear a lot of similarities to Spanish, French, and Italian just based on where it's geographically located and where native speakers live and and all that. I mean, it kind of makes sense that it really does feel like those three languages kind of mixed together in a pot with its own unique identity. Um, kind of emerging out of the three. But yeah, I, I think the fact that it's just not as widely spoken as either of those three languages no. leads it to kind of developing its own 
phraseology and idioms and unique beats that are kind of hard to bring into a different language um, mm -hmm. as opposed to something like Spanish or French that is like way more widely spoken across like a huge geographical span. So how much general work in Catalan do you think has been translated into English at this point? I'm guessing not that much. No, I, I can't imagine so. The science fiction encyclopedia cites a lot of works. And again, some of them sound really cool. Like there's a full-length novel from around this time. I think it's like 1912, 1915 or something like that, mm. that the title is like Artificial Men. So it's like an early robotics type story. Oh. But again, not translated into English. I don't know if there has been any significant contemporary authors who write in modern Catalan that have been translated into English. Uh, I'll have to ask my uh, buddy from Spain if, if he knows anything about that. Yeah, I mean, I've, I'm certainly more familiar with like Catalan painters and things like that, like Joan Moreau is, is a pretty famous name. There does seem to be more of a literary body of work in Catalan than some of the other languages spoken in Spain. Like I was looking for stories from around this time in Gallego, and I came up totally short, even though we were able to find some contemporary publications in Gallego of science fiction. I really just couldn't find any titles from around this time. And you know, the way history plays out with Spain after the Spanish Civil War, when Franco comes into power, all the languages except for Spanish are greatly suppressed until after he dies. So it's a real dark time for the language when he's in yeah. power. It's hard for people. The younger generation doesn't learn it. because Right. They, you know. Exactly. And we'll probably cover Spanish stories from you know that time period and deal with those issues then but around this time when Vidal was writing Catalan was experiencing a language resurgence there is this vigorous debate of well how should we write our language how should we standardize our language and it's just kind of interesting and I guess I made it a little bit more difficult on myself that I happened to choose the author who was I guess in contrast with the norms that did eventually get adopted 30 years later which is kind of interesting how even in the 20th century, those debates are still being played out. That's pretty interesting. And I think that's actually a really good segue into something I was thinking about today, because when you do these podcast episodes, we do uh, sometimes look into a bit of background and, and do a little bit of checking up on the authors, maybe the times they lived in, maybe something to do with science, depending on the episode and its framework, really. Uh, some, sometimes we don't really do very much of that stuff, but sometimes there's quite a bit, I guess. What I wanted to talk about now is the so-called rabbit holes that we might have gone down looking into some of this stuff and what we kind of took away from that as being the most interesting, you know, say uh, if we could each come up with like one or two things, maybe that would be really cool. Nate, I don't know if you want to count the whole uh, study of Catalan as one, because it sounds kind of like you do. Yeah, that's certainly up there for me. And I think the other big one I had was looking into... Schuyler's background, you know, reading his autobiography of oh, yeah. Black and Conservative, as well as the really excellent book that just came out, the Black Pulps book, which I think is an excellent, excellent starting point for early Black authors in the genre, as yeah. you know, a, lot, a lot of the traditional histories basically put the start of Black science fiction authors with Delaney and Butler, but you know, there were these tangential adjacent works that had been written for decades and decades beforehand that just seemed to be completely bypassed by... Yeah. I mean, there, there are a lot of reasons for why that would have happened, I guess. You know, the, the fact that the genre establishment certainly didn't read 
any of these papers, the Pittsburgh Courier and stuff right. like that. So they wouldn't have known about any of the stuff published there. Yeah, and it's just kind of crazy that scholarship is just seemingly starting to dig into this stuff in 2022. The book is very, very recent, but it covers a wide ground and I think was a really fascinating look at something that's been really painfully neglected over the years. I think with one of my my rabbit holes, it kind of fits in with that and like with kind of a bit of uh, with archives and thinking about newspapers and the one that I kind of went deep into was looking at the Mina Irving yeah. uh, stuff yeah. with like with the access that I had through my college, you know, finding all of the different papers and all the different snippets of like stuff that she had published and stuff written about her, which was really interesting to do. That That definitely was one that I had a lot of interest in exploring. And I think the other, for me, I had a really interesting time looking into uh, Paul Shearberg. I thought that, uh, you know, I, I had, uh, I found the Paul, or I can't remember if it was, if I had found it or if one, I can't remember if you, either of you had uploaded it, the Paul Shearberg Reader. Mm-hmm. But that one, you know, looking at his background was also very interesting to me. And this is something that will come up with different topics in my uh, top five. But I think sometimes, you know, the background does kind of affect my feelings on the work and can make it more interesting to read. You have like more of a respect for it. And that was the case, I think, especially with with Shearbert. Yeah, absolutely. And he's such an interesting individual that brings a lot of weird influences to the table. And he was Mm -hmm. just had such an eclectic set of interest in, in his mind and the way he portrayed those in his literature. I think it's just super cool. Yeah, I would say for me, I have I have two uh, as well. And what Gretchen, what you were just saying about about sometimes the background changing our view on the stories or kind of deepening them or or making certain aspects more interesting definitely applies. Definitely noticed that in quite a few cases. And well, I would say the majority of the time, I I think that the fiction we do is actually really good, and I'm actually quite into it a lot of the time. Uh, sometimes. Sometimes the background stuff is more interesting uh, or more compelling in a way. And an example of that that I can think of is looking into all the spy fiction stuff. And I really only did a little bit of background reading into the very early days, essentially espionage and spy history. And there's a lot more I could have dug into. But essentially what I learned was that spy fiction is actually in a way, older than actual spies, and influenced the whole thing. In fact, to the point where it's so crazy, it's like world events getting shaped by the pages of trashy novels. It it almost, like, it's not really a a true parallel, but it kind of almost makes me think of, like, people talking about Ayn Rand and stuff, and how she, she got to be, like, considered some kind of paragon of philosophy for, like, ultra capitalist types, right? Yeah. And you read her books, and it's just like, well, this is like just a, some trashy, like, power fantasy novel. Like, there's really nothing, like, profound <laughs> about it. Like, if you judge it on those merits, maybe you'd actually like it more. But the fact that it has all this extra baggage attached to it makes it complicated. And just kind of seeing how, like, I don't know, there's something, there was something about, especially reading that excerpt of a letter that a guy wrote while in prison in Germany for spying on German fortifications. 
how he basically described himself as Peter Pan. And, you know, just kind of like, this is real fucking serious politics, or is supposed to be, right? Yeah. And yet, yeah. like, it's really bizarre. And I found that just so fascinating, funny, kind of infuriating, kind of a little bit like, wow. I mean, I just, it, it's, it, it feels like they put the cart before the horse, but that there was no choice. Like, it's just somehow fiction influenced reality in a way yeah. that, that's almost unfathomable. Life imitates art. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's yeah. a lot of other weird cases where that happens. True. Hey, right up until our modern times. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's a weird world we live in. QAnon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course, that's why science fiction is quite important, because it allows us to imagine futures that could happen. Yes. Yeah. Or sometimes Definitely. a science fiction author's <laughs> work of science fiction <laughs> becomes... A religion in and of itself, and yeah, well, I definitely think that we're going to have to talk about L. Ron Hubbard at some point too. Mm. Yeah. So, <laughs> I guess one That'll piece of media that I was listening to a lot uh, a month or two ago was Frank Zappa's Joe's Garage. And oh yeah. In that, uh, somewhere halfway through the the album, you meet L. Ron Hoover of the Church of Appliantology. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Frank Zappa. Yeah. This stuff is uh, it's clever. Sometimes you have to be in the mood to listen to those albums because it's so so based around the humor. But yeah. yeah. And the other thing that I thought was really interesting, you guys probably know what I'm going to say, but was uh, looking into the Jack Williamson uh, autobiography and his history and background and stuff because mm -hmm. I just thought that was really an interesting picture of somebody who really bridged the gap between the very earliest days of the pulp era of science fiction coming into its own, or maybe I should say science fiction, and now, basically contemporary stuff. And it felt like, even though here's this basically cowboy, as you said, Nate, it feels like, you know, the childhood of somebody out of a, a Willa Kaler novel. Yeah. Basically, yet he is basically transmitting into the modern era and, and feeling the closest to what we have now by the end of his career and, and his thoughts on things and actually being able to comment on both some of the old time authors that were his friends like Edmund Hamilton and also Clark Ashton Smith, whom he met and apparently wasn't very impressed with and new guys like Samuel Delaney and Harlan Ellison. I guess, I mean, I'm saying new guys, but not really new anymore, but seventies and eighties even, uh, you know, talking about, meeting all these younger science fiction fans and what that was like for him being a granddad by 1947, basically. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I don't know. I just thought that was really interesting. I was quite taken by his modesty and kind of like just definitely a contrast to somebody like Isaac Asimov, who he talks about a lot because I guess they were kind of friends. But, you know, in his introduction to the early Williamson, he talks about how Asimov getting his book, The Early Asimov, was kind of the inspiration to allow his book to get published. But he kind of talks about Asimov in a positive way, but also kind of a little mocks him a little bit for talking about his oh-so-difficult childhood. And, and Williamson's like, yeah, well, I think my family and I had it much worse than yours did. <laughs> and Asimov always kind of seems like somebody who's I mean, I always liked his introductions. I liked his his commentaries on on everything, uh, from 
the science fiction genre to his own life to like Shakespeare. I mean, I used his guides to Shakespeare a lot when I was in high school. That's for sure. They were very helpful. But he's always seemed like somebody who's very well aware of his own intelligence and a little bit, I guess, cocky in a, in a way. I mean, you know, he's very proud of being a member of Mensa and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and Williamson just seems like really down to earth and really like modest and kind of when he doesn't get something or he doesn't understand something, he's very willing to admit it. And he doesn't doesn't have any pretense. And I thought that was really interesting to read about from his perspective and stuff. And it's kind of always a question in my head when I read an autobiography, which I don't do very often, is what's this person going to be like? Like, do I trust what they say kind of thing? Like, are they going to puff themselves up to the point where, like, anytime something bad happens, I can't really believe what they say? And, and I don't really get that impression from him. So I, I thought that was an interesting place to go and hopefully communicated that reasonably well in the uh, intro segment last time. Yeah, I mean, he had a fascinating life. Yes. So before we run down some of the stories that we've done over the last year, Nate, you're kind of the star of this uh, this episode, so I wanted to talk about the music. Okay. The uh, intros and various music cues that we use and stuff in the podcast are created by Software Synth, correct? Most yeah, most of them. So I use a series of programs to make the music. Primarily, I work in... Ableton Live, which has a number of functions, but it has a lot of soft synths. And those are really fun to play around with. Mm -hmm. But it also has a sampler. I also use a program called Cool Edit Pro, which Adobe bought a while ago and calls it Edition now, but I don't really like the, the user interface. But I use that for not only editing the podcast, but doing more like wave editing stuff like that. So there's yes. this early form of electronic music called music concrete which came out of tape recording technology of the 1950s and it is really strange because it you know features real world sounds that are recorded on tape and manipulated either slowed down sped up looped on top of one another put through effects uh, so on and so forth and yeah. cool edit allows you to do that much easier than having a whole bunch of tape machines so digital audio editing software generally takes the place of a million tape racks and yeah right <laughs> reverb public machines and stuff like that so there was this one artist i was listening to a lot this guy hands two and he has like this 50 tape box set or whatever of a lot of his stuff and that's just like a fraction of the stuff he's released it's really an insane amount but he does all tape manipulation stuff there's no synth stuff in his work it's like all tape stuff and it really breaks down a lot of the sounds to the basic like one tape he recorded just by using sounds that he recorded out of a cactus but you know you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to tell what the source is because they're so distorted no. and manipulated and kind of right that's that's of that's one of the neat things about being able to manipulate found sound like that yeah you, you don't necessarily know what the source is you can't tell yeah so i did that a couple times for a couple of pieces taking things like you know, hitting a metal lid with a butter knife or whatever and extending it out to be 20 seconds long. So it's like really echoey, I don't know, otherworldly sound. Then, you know, you could do other things with various tools in Cool Edit Pro of just basic wave editing without having to use synthesizers or anything like that. There's this pretty cool record I was listening to that was put out by Bell Labs called The Science of Sound. And there's a couple of these other 
records from the 1950s and 60s that are like educational records, I guess, explaining to children what electronic music is, how the sounds are created and things like that. So oh, neat. But I, I was using some of the techniques on that to make some weird sounds, um, you know, just trying to break things instead yeah. of making melodies or things like that. But it, it, it works mm-hmm. in either scenario. I've heard of some of that, not necessarily educational, but I'm, I'm trying to get think of that guy's name. I think he was in the 50s. I think he's actually a Canadian guy, Bruce. Bruce Hack. Yeah. Yeah. And and he did all these albums that like based on like children's stories and stuff like that. Yeah. And there's something based on Dracula. And it's most of it's it's kind of melodic. Like, you know, I don't know how much he uses actual tapes. I think I think it's early synths mostly. Yeah, I think but, he was uh, he did a lot of Moog stuff. Okay, yeah. But well, there yeah. must have been some some tape manipulation then, though, because the, the oh, early yeah. moves were like monophonic, right? So yeah, you wanted to get the yeah, okay. And a lot of those early electronic musicians were attached to either radio or TV studios. So probably the yeah. one that people know the most in popular culture is the Doctor Who theme, which was Delia Derbyshire yeah, and the exactly. radiophonic workshop. Yeah, but, I was going to mention. I want to recommend something to you, Nate. I, I've probably mentioned this before, Gretchen. You might enjoy this too. Oh. It's an album by a group called White Noise. Yeah. And the name of the album is The Electric Storm. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, it's got Delia Derbyshire and Brian Hodgson from the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, along with David Vorhaus, who's an electronic music composer and a percussionist whose name I don't know. And it's basically, yeah, it's all done with tapes and loops and weird percussion and singing. And the first half is like, kind of whimsical and lighthearted feeling there's there's all kinds of cool backwards like backmasking and and it's quite melodic it's almost like weird jazzy poppy electronic music from the 60s and then you flip it over and the second half is this absolutely hellish landscape of like you just sound really dark and it's like you can imagine somebody tripping on lsd or something listening to this album and like they hear the first side and it's like well that's a little freaky but I'm kind of digging it, you know, it's 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 almost sexy, right? And then they flip it over and and like suddenly they go to hell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean the BBC stuff is interesting because they produced a lot of TV shows. Uh, Doctor Who, is, you know, is obviously the most high profile one that used mm-hmm. a lot of this kind of music composition techniques, but yeah. A lot of the other national studios like RTF out of France, WDR out of Germany, NHK out of Japan, they produced early works of electronic music, probably less so in the TV and movies. I'm not exactly sure how much those stations did with like original radio programming. It'd be an interesting angle to pursue. But that's where a lot of the major composers got their start. It's the only people who could really afford high-tech tape equipment or early synthesizers in the 50s and 60s were going to be radio and TV studios that have budgets of however yeah. many tens of thousands of dollars. There's a really dollars. interesting article on the Radiophonic Workshop in Sound on Sound magazine. Mm-hmm. It's really worth a read. It's quite long in details, but it talks a lot about the people that work there, what the actual workshop was like, how they had rooms and rooms full of like random garbage, basically. And yeah. that, that, you know, people were free to look around there and use whatever they could. Because, <laughs> you know, you could, you could, find all kinds of things that you could use to make sounds and stuff like that. And and yeah, like stitching together bits of tape by hand to make certain things happen and stuff. Oh yeah. Incredibly time consuming, incredibly tedious. And I'm really thankful that I have a program like cool edit pro where it's just like a mouse click or two. 
instead of <laughs> yeah, having yeah. to break out the scissors and stretch stuff and, and all that. But a lot of that stuff, I, I kind of channel unconsciously into the pieces that go into the podcast. I mean, a, a lot of times I'm just kind of going with the flow and don't really have a particular thing in mind of what I want to do with something before I go into it. I mean, sometimes if I know I got to write a piece for a particular story, I might have like an idea in mind of what kind of instrumentation or mood I'm going for, but almost never do I have like a particular melody in my head or something like that going into it. I just kind of turn on the synthesizer and just see what happens. And some of them come up pretty cool, I think. And it's a lot of fun to work with. I do have some actual real world instruments that I will occasionally plug in and use. I have a couple of Yamaha keyboards. I have a Theremini, which is this really awesome beginner theremin that oh. functions as a synthesizer as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's has like a pitch correction and scale function. So if you're like learning the instrument to play like classical renditions or actual songs on it, and you don't want to just like make a whole bunch of noise, it's really easy yeah. to get into and, and do that with. And it has a wide range of presets and sounds. Yeah, because actual theremin is pretty hard to oh, it's completely hard. control the yeah, pitch. Yeah, very, right? very difficult. Probably one of the most difficult instruments to play well. And if you watch somebody like Clara Rockmore, who is a virtuoso of the instrument play, it's just really, really incredible to watch how she handles the instrument. Very difficult to work with, but it produces some cool sounds, and some of them have been used in some of those podcast yeah. interludes. So one case where you did actually have melodies in mind, though, were the polkas that featured on a couple of the episodes, most notably the most recent one, I think. Yeah, so I used six different polkas that I found on Library of Congress, who has a huge, huge collection of sheet music that's mm-hmm. all in the public domain, so it's everything before... 1928 or 9, whatever the year is now. It always goes up by one every year, of course. But I initially encountered the idea of uh, high-tech polka, if you want to call it that, (laughs) uh, a few years ago when I was researching for something else. And I encountered sheet music cover for a telegraph polka. And I was like, oh, that's funny. I wonder what that sounds like. And it wasn't until we did the telegraph uh, radio episode a, a while back that I was like, huh, yeah. I wonder if I could find this and see what this sounds like. So I did, and I transcribed it. And I was like, this is kind of cool. I wonder how many of these other ones are out there. And it turns out there's a polka for everything. So <laughs> I looked up the sheet music collection for various astronomical bodies, you know, Saturn, Mars, the moon, Venus, so on and, and so forth. And you know, a lot of them refer to obvious Greek and Roman gods and things like that in the context of the music, but we could just change the context a little bit for our science fiction podcast and give the instrumentation a more futuristic sounding sheen as opposed to the piano and violin scores that they were originally written for. But polkas are usually performed by like lots of woodwinds and horns and percussion. People dance to that, right? So... Yeah, right. So they're primarily yeah. dances. Most of them were scored for just a piano though a couple of them also had violin parts. The Asteroid Polka, which I used for the Lee Brackett segment, was scored for banjo. I I thought that was just so strange. And and, and you're listening to it, you could kind of tell, like, yeah, somebody wrote this for a banjo, didn't they? Um, (laughs) It's really, really weird stuff. Yeah. But it was cool to transcribe those and kind of 
bring them into the modern era. Yeah, there's one I really liked in particular. I can't remember which one it was now. I think it was the Mercury Polka. Okay, yeah. 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 Yeah, some of those melodies are silly and and fun and I've been primarily saving them for like light-hearted, fun, pulpy adventure stories of which we covered a lot of in the amazing episode, so I thought it was a pretty good time to yeah. unload a lot of the polkas. But I I kind of do try to match the mood and tone of the pieces to what we're covering, even though like I don't specifically go into a lot of the pieces saying like this one's going to be for that story, this one's going to be for that story. I'll just kind of write a whole bunch and then when we have the episode I'm just like okay this one fits better with that story this one fits better with that just kind of choose it that way yeah definitely definitely pretty impressive sometimes mm-hmm. really cool soundscapes and sounds and sets the mood quite well I think well thank you yes. I certainly have a lot of fun doing it And we're back. And we've been doing this for a year. We actually did a bonus episode last December. And we actually didn't do this at that time. I think we did two bonus episodes last year. And the only reason we didn't this year is time just got away from us, I think. It it didn't really seem like we'd already done that many episodes. But we've done 49 stories. Yeah. So that's probably an impressive amount now, granted. Some of those are very short. And some of them are a little longer. (laughs) So we're going to start by actually running down our three least favorite entries from Chrononauts 2022. Speaking for myself, I would say, although I'm going to break my own rule uh, very quickly, I'm going to say that in general, it's harder for shorter work to end up on this list. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is, to be honest, a really long, bad story is much more difficult to get through than a really short bad story yeah and i think that the best of has a kind of a different criteria than this this is kind of like how much did it pain me to read the story is actually consider something to consider right so i don't know how you guys feel about it but but things didn't turn out really the way i expected this year i mean i think i think some of them <laughs> we'll have to listen to the episode that nate and i did with this theme last year but I feel like, in general, there wasn't really as much, like, pretty terrible stuff this year. Mm. There were a few things, though. There were a few things. And I don't know, though. Uh, In general, I think even the stuff that wasn't very good was interesting to talk about. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, I don't feel like rancor against it or anything like that. Yeah. yeah, I think with the early podcast titles, we covered a lot more bottom of the barrel crap just because it was super, super early. And yeah. you know, now that we're getting on in time, we, I feel like less obligated to do that. Yeah, we get to pick and choose exactly. which ones we yeah. want to cover. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I, I feel like with my list, like the the two that I chose as like the the two bottom two were ones that I didn't care for the most. But past that, the, there were other stories that. Either I felt like they 
didn't just, they didn't stand out to me, but they weren't terrible or were stories that I felt almost were redeemed by the conversations that we had about them. So I have less hatred of them, I guess. Yeah, it's funny doing the episodes on the stories. It's like almost reading it a second time. And, you know, going through the yeah. plot summary and all that. Because you get to hear other people's thoughts on it, too. Yeah. Right? So yeah. that's kind of maybe somebody has some perspective that you didn't consider or, or something like that. <laughs> and I was I was commenting on a video that I was watching lately. Kind of funny aside that I made I made this comment in the Chrononaut server, but the Heavy, Heavy Metallurgy podcast did a discography run through of Gloister Cult over the weekend. And it lasted for over six hours. So no more complaints about the length of our podcast episodes, although there is editing involved in ours. So that adds an extra layer of complication to things because it takes a long time for uh, a long episode to go out for that reason. But anyway, I was commenting on their video saying I like it when not everybody agrees on where to place the albums because it just makes things more interesting. You know, you got... When people can discuss stuff without getting angry about it, but they don't agree on something, you know, they're like, yeah, I, I like this more than you did. Here's why. And then sometimes the other person thinks about it. And it's like, yeah, I can kind of see where you're coming from. Maybe I'll listen to it a few more times or something like that. And like, mm-hmm. yeah, there's been a couple of times when, when just talking about a story improves my feeling about it as we mm-hmm. go, kind of. Yeah, I really never understood the attitude that some people take of like having their personal media favorites like attached to their personality and taking it really like personally when somebody mm-hmm. doesn't like them it, it's yeah. very odd yeah I, I was participating in like a music album exchange thing or, or whatever this last month and a couple people oh, yeah. didn't like one of my picks and it's like they were apologizing and it's like why are you apologizing to me i didn't write the record you know come on <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> wow yeah yeah no, that's uh people get way that way about music people get that way about franchise movies and television shows especially i find but, yeah yeah the, the big know. budget stuff especially i mean i don't we we might have to make the conscious decision to like stay away from star wars stuff for that reason because the last thing we need is like a whole bunch of pissed off star wars fans yeah. descending on us people's had their lives threatened over this yeah, stuff. it's crazy <laughs> yeah. it's absolutely crazy all right. Well, I don't know that anybody's going to be threatening us over our choices here, <laughs> mostly because they're like 100 years old. And yeah, right. Not that many people read them. But. I don't think if one of us has a pick that the other two disagree with, I don't think we're going to have any huge feuds on this on this show. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Stranger things have happened. That's true. That's true. Yeah. All right. I've got my D6, which I have just sort of thoughtlessly called in the podcast a couple of times a 60, showing my newbie tendencies here. But anyway, let's see. Uh, same order as last time then. Nate, Gretchen, and then me. And we'll see what we get. All right. Well, our first roll is a three. So that means, Gretchen, you get to pick the number three, the first number three. All right. So as I said, the... Bottom two were the ones that I had less of a a hard time choosing. So when it came to the bottom three, this one was just one that didn't really stand out to me. I I feel like there was also a bit of a problem with it that I I will mention when I say that it it was the Sea Witch. Mm. I just personally wasn't as interested in this one. And 
I also, I feel like we, we kind of talked a bit when we were discussing this in the podcast episode, the concept of like the reincarnation and there, we talked a bit about the fan fiction or whatever that yeah. was just the genders <laughs> <Yeah>. being swapped. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> and that was the only difference. Yeah, I think two of the, the most interesting things about that whole talk were one, the fan fiction and two, <laughs> comparing it to Algernon Blackwood and how he treated this subject. With yeah. A lot more... That, that was interesting. Um, that was the interesting part. The story itself, again, didn't really stand out. And I feel like when we were talking about the, the, the fan fiction, seeing how it would have been if it were the woman who was this protagonist, it does have a very strange quality to the, to the reincarnation that feels a little unsettling and uh, yeah i just i didn't i don't know i didn't care for this one as much and i I don't have too much else to say about this one as my bottom three pick yeah i was kind of lukewarm on this one as well certainly dialysis when the green star wayne was like way better than the sea witch Mm. um yeah if if this one puts you off a little bit uh, definitely read that one because that one has i think a lot more going for it Mm. Mm. The super science was really cool and there was a a awesome harmonic sound weapon Mm. and Real ray guns and everything. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I guess it's me then next. And well, I'm kind of sorry to do this. It was Gretchen's first lead on an episode, and I gotta say, it's Arctic by uh, Anna Adolf. I <laughs> again, it was so weird that I don't necessarily want to trash it. Like it was just so strange and eccentric that a part of me kind of liked it, but. I didn't really get a lot from it. It was hard to read. I had to reread parts, and it wasn't a very long story, but it felt it felt long. It felt like after reading ten pages, I was a little bit exhausted, like just trying to figure out what she was saying and what she was getting at. Yeah, I just I don't know. It's kind of one of those things like Senor Knickknack, where I'm not necessarily going to think back on this one very much i just i just can't really find any anything to relate to in my brain i guess is the problem and i i get i think that she had some political ideas and some philosophical things that she wanted to express and it doesn't come across with a lot of clarity i even had trouble figuring out whether the main characters were supposed to be human or not (laughs) (laughs) so the bird question. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it like, here's the thing, right? I, I knew it was going to be something eccentric and I, I kind of wanted to run with it and just be like, yeah, okay. Just show me what, what you want to show me. And I don't have to make anything of it. But then, you know, in the end too, it was like, it was all a kind of a dream type ending. And I don't know. It didn't mean anything to me, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, and that, I guess that's my sad takeaway from it. You know, it was just too obscure for me and just too unpolished, I guess. Like, it's a very unpolished uh, piece of writing. So, interesting, but not not very good, I, I have to say. Yeah, I don't know. That is what I, I happen to like a lot. <laughs> well, that's cool. That's, that's... <laughs> I do have to say that uh, that might be making an appearance later on on one of my lists. So. Yeah, I'm definitely a big Arctic fan, and I, I like weird psychedelic stuff, and that's mm. got a lot of it. Yeah. And the fact that it doesn't make sense is obviously true, but it also doesn't really 
matter to my enjoyment of it. No. Yeah. Um, I, I, I did say, and this was something I was planning on bringing up, like, I completely understand why someone wouldn't like the work. Because it, it does have a very odd quality, and yeah. it is very hard to understand. Yeah. But I, I guess, it, and, you know, I'll get more into it later, but I, I did enjoy it for that quality. Like, I felt like it was weird in a way that I personally kind of enjoy. It's very uniquely weird, that's for sure. Yeah. That's cool. I, I've definitely read things before where other people were like, this is really weird. I don't get it and I don't like it. And I'm trying to be like, but it was awesome. And then I can't really explain. <laughs> you know, I can't really yeah. change their minds. And I, that's so that's definitely happened to me before. And I guess that's the thing with really weird, surreal fiction is you have to be in the mood. It also has to connect with you somehow. I mean, last year <laughs> I read Creatures of Light and Darkness by Roger Zelazny and somebody else online was kind of reading it with me at the same time and he didn't really like it he didn't i think he kind of liked certain imagery and stuff like that and he thought it was cool that it had all this egyptian mythology stuff in it but the style shifting all over the place and and it being very i i used the word slippery to describe the book and he's like yeah that's that's why i didn't like it and i i liked it in part for that reason i i actually thought it was really really cool but maybe if I hadn't been in the mood, I might have been impatient with it, too. I might have not had a good time with it. But I think a reality, too, though, is that somebody like Roger Zelazny or even, although some people might disagree, but like David Lindsay, who wrote The Voyage to Arcturus, they're a little more polished in what they do than she was writing this. Oh, it's total outsider. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's not polished at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, again, like, I don't want to be trashing it and i'm not going to trash anything in fact but i can see why she didn't really write much else <laughs> i guess nate what about you so my number three pick is one we did last time leslie stone's out of the void uh. yeah this one has some neat things going for it but ultimately just really really drags in the second half mm. the pieces don't come together at all really in a satisfying way it seemed like she's just making it up as she goes. And I don't know, somehow there's a sequel that's even longer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite a bit longer. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I thought this one was kind of tedious to get through and not too much payoff. Yeah. That's also my number two. Hmm. I did not include this on my list, but partially okay. because I felt bad about how much we, we uh, kind of ragged on it last time oh, yeah. that I thought I thought I would give it a break, but it definitely oh. was, it's definitely down there. I still think there was maybe, again, if it had just been one of the several elements that were in the story, it would have been, yeah, it could have been good, but right. yeah, it yeah, just, but too much. it drags on yeah. and the pacing's off. Yeah. Uh, pacing's really bad. By the way, guys, I have a runner-up. I, I cheated. I included a runner-up. <laughs> and, and I have to include this, but I'm I'm curious to see if it'll make any of your threes. But yeah, the mm. stone... I mean, I compared it to The Mummy a few times when we were talking about it. The Mummy was a lot longer. But longer. I don't know. The Mummy kind of st stuck with me in a way. Like, The Mummy, I kind of liked. Like, it, mm. it, it had a real charm to it. This one didn't have as much... It had more uh, modern, like, 20th century super science, I guess. But it was... The world building was really strange. You know, the way it turned into this, like, weird romance adventure type story on the alien planet. I don't know. It, it was very cliched and not very well. Like, there were some, again, like, talking about the polish. There were some parts of the story that I thought were not well written at all. 
you know, they could have been done with a lot more finesse. And I, I the, the frustrating thing about a story like this is that I can kind of see in better hands how it could have been awesome. Right. Mm, yes. Yeah. Well, what can you do? What can you do? Exactly. Not read the sequel. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. So, so, Gretchen, what about your next one? So, my next one, even though we were just talking uh, when we started this segment, about how if a work is longer, it usually... It's more painful when it's bad. But the second choice that I have is actually uh, the case of the Dixon Torpedo. (laughs) Because it's, even though it's like, what, it is like 3,000 words. It's not that long. No. Yet, like, it's not as bad as it could have been if if it was longer. But despite that, I still felt like I wanted to take a break during it. Yeah. I just thought it was very dry and the very dull prose style. It just felt like a slog for something that was very short. Yeah, this was also yeah. my number two. And mm. yeah, it, pretty much the exact same complaints. Um, <laughs> I don't know how this was a recurring character that he had like a whole bunch of stories about this guy. Yeah. I don't even remember the character's name. No, me neither. <laughs> I have the whole book. I didn't read any of the others. I was yeah. I was thinking maybe I would, but I just couldn't work up the enthusiasm to do it. So yeah, couldn't uh, work up the nerve. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, this was so weird. This uh, um, this is my number one. Mm. <laughs> that is my number one. <laughs> the story was a big fat lot of nothing. Like it, it, people say, oh, I really love. 19th century detective fiction it has such charm to it this story has no charm whatsoever it has nothing it has doesn't even have the holmes watson relationship which is the most obvious thing to rip off when you're ripping off a home story like it is one of the best elements yeah right (laughs) and every other every other person that rips off Holmes knows that except for arthur morrison apparently you can't even rip off something correctly yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe that's how he's rivaling Sherlock Holmes. It's just like being <laughs> bad at it. Um. <laughs> yeah, this is just a really lame story. It wasn't that painful to read, though, because it was short. Yeah. So that's what I mean by kind of going against my principle here. But mm-hmm. like, it just it, it just felt like it was only published because they wanted something to fill the gap because there yeah. was no Holmes, right? Yeah. And like, you could do that and make it great and. Other authors did. Even August Derleth knew how to do it. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, even with the other works that we've read that have ended up on this bottom three and other works that we didn't discuss but we thought weren't as good, like, there was still potential in those. We mentioned even without The Void, there was potential. Yeah. But this felt, yeah. there was nothing. There, It felt very just empty and there was no point to it. And the potential yeah. that came from this came in the description of it that I found mm. in like the early spy detective fiction literature oh. I was looking through because I really wanted to find something that had some like strange gadgets, like some weird device or whatever. And this self-guided super torpedo or whatever just sounded like such a cool idea, but it turns yeah. out to be a MacGuffin that has nothing to do with the plot whatsoever. Yeah, it's like the classic example of the MacGuffin that I was reading in a story the other day. The thing that the characters care about, but the audience doesn't. Right. That's what yeah. the, 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 the guffin is. Right? Yeah. So it's like, does it work? Well, maybe like in Lord of the Rings, it works pretty damn well, but uh, not here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. There's arguments to be made that the ring is not a MacGuffin, 
but you know we can entertain. No, that it's more than that. Time, You're right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This one sounded cooler in a one sentence description in a book that was not written by Arthur Morrison than it did actually reading it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. When that happens. Yeah. So I guess that cycles back to you, Gretchen. So what's your number one? Oh, uh, JM, did you have, you had that as, isn't that your number one? So you have a number uh, two to go through? That's, that was my three that, uh, but I could give my runner up now, I guess, instead of oh. after. So my runner up, it didn't make the three. And the reason is, I really was intrigued, and I really enjoyed reading it for the most part. I was really wondering where he was going, and I really was captivated by it in a way. But reading it made me worry about the mental state of the author, and not in a good way. And I'm talking about Medusa by Visiak. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it was cool in a lot of ways. It it wasn't that badly written, although it did feel a little bit unpolished at times, too, but I kind of wondered sometimes if, if it was, you know, a modern reprinting screwing a couple of things up here and there, or whether... In general, though, I, I thought it was, like, interesting with its themes. I really liked the almost Dickensian opening chapters mm-hmm. with this, like, poor orphan struggling to... and accidentally killing somebody and yeah. stuff like that, and, like... Yeah. <laughs> there were a lot of things that I thought he was trying to say about, like childhood innocence and and about like exile from the garden of eden and like all these paradise lost themes and stuff like that and it was all expressed in a very weird way and in like the sea adventure aspect was kind of cool you know it was we read some better sea adventures though uh this year i think yeah and just the way that it and it was kind of subtle it was not something you pick up all the time right away but there was this subtle current of prudishness to it i thought mm-hmm. oh yeah that was kind of like a little bit again it makes me worry about the author like you know he's kind of he seems to have some problems and real hang-ups so yeah. i don't know like it, it it was um an interesting read that i wouldn't necessarily not recommend to anyone but i would certainly say there are caveats if you would want to read it and i didn't mm-hmm. particularly enjoy some of the places that it went i guess <laughs> So, yeah. Yeah. That is actually a story that, for me, like, it serves as such an interesting work to dissect. And, like, this discussion of that work kind of redeemed it for me. So it did not show up on my bottom okay. list because I just fa- found, like, kind of discussing it was interesting enough that I, I didn't have as much of a problem with it. And yeah. In addition to the discussion and bringing out the themes a little more, I thought the climax was absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. So yeah. That, last, was awesome. uh, that like second to last chapter is really cool. Yeah. 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 That, that made it all worthwhile for me. Mm-hmm. And it just came out, it seemed to kind of come out of nowhere almost, yeah. too. But it was yeah. like, it, again, you know, there were, there were things about it. Like, it's a book that I would consider rereading, actually, at some point in my life, maybe, just because now that I know what to look for, you know, kind of like, there were all these things that I was wondering, okay, what's he trying to say with that? What is, what is this with the sea devil people? You know, what is with the professor who's like, not lost his mind, but he's turned into this almost like innocent childish kind of figure. Like what happened to him? And why is that important? Like, why does he, he's almost like the, he kind of helps them come through at the end. And then even though the captain dies and everything. So I don't know, it was, it was, it was an interesting journey. And, I was the one who really wanted to read it, I think. 
at the outset, but I have to say, yeah, it was, it was a little bit, not really disappointed, but kind of like, you know, I mean, I don't know if I really like it all that much, but it was interesting. (laughs) So, yeah. Yes. So, well, my number one, well, my bottom one, it is Unfinished Communication from Hinton. And I, I first have to say, hypocrite that I am, some of the work's faults are also things that can be levied against some of the stuff I put in my top five. Like Arctic, which will be coming up, like the plot and the prose can be very difficult to follow. Oh, it definitely is, yeah. Uh, and it also, this is uh, going to spoil another thing on my top five, but it is also has some troubling creative origins, yeah. like serious. Like However, I think, you know, the other works still offer things that make up for those faults. Like, it doesn't, it also doesn't combine to make an experience like unfinished communication. And like, I think also with this work, it's, we've talked a bit about how the potential of the other works we were mentioning in this, these lists, kind of like it redeems them in a way sometimes. But for me, because there was this potential there's like this kind of like commentary or meta meta narrative about like storytelling and like what stories mean, Mm -hmm. but it's like, it all falls through because of that second half. And that kind of makes me angry at it because the whole reason that it falls through and there's that second half is because this is a justification for a man cheating on his wife. I know it's like (laughs) such a misogynistic asshole and it comes off like so much in the last half and yeah and it's so self-aggrandizing yeah, it it's really so, is <laughs> it's, yeah i think we said we said it was uh petty yeah least. yes i i feel <laughs> yeah. like like it, it was one of those works this is where the discussion actually made me dislike it more because <laughs> I, I realized the background behind it and it made yeah. sense but not in a way i wanted it to but yeah that that was my final choice here you know I did I did consider putting that on my list and I'm not really sure why I didn't necessarily. I guess it could have at least made a runner up too. I mean, I actually have two runner ups for the top 5 as well, so I could have had two for this one and that that would have been it, I guess, but I don't know. Maybe maybe it's because I enjoyed the first half quite a bit. But then yeah, the second half is actually quite annoying and frustrating at times. So, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's it's it definitely could have made my list. Yeah. I I I had it in my head a little bit, and then I kind of thought, uh, I don't know, I guess it didn't really bother me enough to, to put it on there, but then, mm-hmm. you know, I did. I said Medusa was the runner-up. Maybe that could have been my runner-up, too, because mm-hmm. in the end, I kind of spoke positively about Medusa still, so I don't know. Yeah, you're right, though. Every, everything you say is, is definitely true. It It was disappointing in a way that I guess Medusa was not disappointing. It was disappointing because that's where you want to go with it after all that, and the cool intro, and the mm-hmm the parts that actually made me laugh a little bit in the start, like, then you want to go there with this misogynistic petty stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't know where I would rank this one probably in the bottom third somewhere, but Mm -hmm. I feel like this is one of those stories where you could just like change a couple minor details and it would come out to be like really good. But the fact that those minor details come from just like such a nasty, crappy place, it just kind of makes it hard to, overlook yeah like i said like it, it's just like a combination of yeah. of everything like if it were just one failing it wouldn't be as bad but right. it's that it all adds up to like just this really 
horrible picture of like you know it's misogynistic it it's the writer but like the background behind it makes it unlikable the story itself doesn't make sense everything adds up to a failure yeah in my opinion yeah and 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 unlike some of the other stuff that we've highlighted mainly arctic i guess but it is quite polished which makes it more frustrating in a way because you know it's not like that you know you kind of feel like he could have done better, and I guess he released a shortened version of it. No, that was abridged by like some modern person who posted it online. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> some kind of media vetter. But no, they they abridged out basically everything except for like the last half, where it's like that weird dimension oh, time traveling. So all the cool part. stuff. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah. So whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely a fair a fair pick and and I again I could have chosen that. That it was something that I I considered and I don't know why I back away from it in the end, but I guess maybe I just didn't have a strong enough recollection of how I felt reading that second half. Well, I yes. got my number 1 uh oh, which yes. might be a surprising pick because it's from our old friend William Hope Hudson. Mm. And it is The House Among the Laurels. And while I liked a lot of the Karnacki stories, I just did not get along with this one at all. Mm -hmm. I thought it was needlessly cruel and mean-spirited. I did not like the resolution of the story at all. There's some good imagery here and there, but I think overall the negative bad vibes that the story kind of puts off with the animal cruelty, it just kind of killed it for me. And yeah. and you know, the really like classist stuff about yeah. like homeless people <laughs> right. is a little off putting. Yeah, there's the bungled like yeah. police caper who I don't know, the cops are like Herschel Gordon Lewis level stupid <laughs> and I don't know. It didn't yeah. work for me the way that mm-hmm. like some of the other Karnacki stories came off. I, mm-hmm. I thought this was easily the weakest of the Karnacki stories, and when I was thinking about stories for this segment that like really left a negative taste in my mouth. I think this one was the most bitter tasting upon reflection. Yeah, that's fair. I think this was pretty early in the collection. So between this... Yeah, it was number two. Okay. So between this and Monster of the Gate, I was like, wow, he's killed three dogs and a cat already. <laughs> yeah. Like, is this going to be a real... <laughs> like, is yeah. what kind of book is this going to be? <laughs> but it didn't end up... There wasn't really more after that. But no, it was no. just kind of, oh, okay. <laughs> like... I was kind of keeping score there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hooking your audience with animal death, I guess. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, cool. Well, more on Karnacki in a little bit. But let's roll for the... Let's see who gets to start the uh, the positive rundown then. Okay. Oh, let me do that again. <laughs> that didn't even sound right. <laughs> we got to have the right sound effect. Yeah, right. That's better. Okay. All right. Five. So that means I get to start, actually. And I am indeed going to start with my number five, and I cheated here. I told you guys about this in the server, so I don't know if you noticed, but I wanted to do it this way. I Forgive me, but I included all the Karnaki stories in one big group, and I think that's fair, yeah. just because they are pretty formulaic, and that's kind of what I like about them. There's something to be said for a good formula, and 
I think Hodgson really hit on a really good formula here. Now, granted, after nine stories, you're kind of thinking it would be nice if the formula changed up a little bit, and maybe there were signs that he was going to do that, but it just never really happened. Different things getting in the way and war happening, perhaps, and stuff like that, getting blown to pieces by a shell and all that. But with the hog and the haunted Jarvie, there were there were indications that things were starting to turn in a slightly different direction. And not maybe a different direction in terms of the way the stories play out, but the actual, you know, the structure of things. And it's like, okay, we're taking Karnaki on a ship now. And, and okay, here's Karnaki doing all kinds of stuff with his super science and, and whatnot and that we only got little hints at before. And I think the formula works really, really well. And I just think that I can totally understand why even... Now, in the 2010s, there are authors writing Karnaki stories. I think the bulk, the bulk of them have been written by William Michael, but there are other authors that we talked about in that podcast, including Andrew Cardinal, who created their own Karnaki stories and played with the formula in their own ways. And it really works. And Hodgson just did a really cool thing with that, I think. And I love the Like, you know, I, I even wanted to write my own Karnaki story, which I'm still kind of working on, but you know, as usual with <laughs> fiction writing projects, it's tough. <laughs> hardly ever get finished. But you know, I had this really cool idea to do a Karnaki story, and I still might finish it someday. So, and like that's just, I guess, a big criterion for me on when we do these stories is how much am I going to think about them afterwards. And here it's not so much that I thought about an individual story, but just the the atmosphere of the Karnaki stories and the the feeling of what Karnaki himself was like and the interesting contrast that not everybody seems to pick up on where somebody says he's like rude and stuff, but we're like, no, he wasn't rude at all. He's actually seems like a nice guy and like maybe animal cruelty notwithstanding, but like, I don't know that. <laughs> But yeah, you know, it's, it's, it was really cool to me and really interesting to get into that world and kind of start seeing Karnaki stories all around me a little bit. And that's kind of how it felt. So Certainly when I was editing the episode, I had the outlines of two Karnaki stories flash in my mind. Um, so maybe Chrononaut Zine number one will be a Karnaki sequel. Um. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Chrononaut Zine number one. <laughs> Yeah, we're going to talk at the end of the episode about about some of our future things. Uh, I don't know if that'll come up again, but it's just cool thought, you know. That's Maybe something... if we set up a Patreon, that'll be one of the the tiers. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, give people our Chrononaut scene for sure. I do want to do something like that at some point. I'm, I'm not exactly mm-hmm. sure how we can swing it. Be it republications of some of the public domain stories with our graphic design and art or thoughts like that. Yeah. Right. Things. Yeah. Yeah. Our own little things. Yeah. Yeah. There's stuff to be done in that realm. So more to come later, I guess. You know, I was thinking with the Karnaki stories, it really is like, they are more than the sum of their parts. I think like the stories themselves, like some of them are kind of weak and, and some of them are great. But I think yeah. that having them all together, which is why I think it works to put them all together, is, is like they equal something that because of like their formula and because of Karnaki himself, it like transcends all of the story's individual like value as a work. And I think the way that they're just happen to be structured chronologically 
with mm. the weird ones coming at the very end after Hudson died. Mm. It just kind of like feels like such a refreshing break after you go through the formula six times and it's like, all right, are we going to have to do this three more times? But no, yeah. you, you get something different in those last three. And yeah. I think it's a really welcome change. And not to say that the first six were bad. I enjoyed a lot of the first six a lot. The Gateway of the Monster was awesome. And the Whistling Room. Yeah, that one was the really good. The Whistling Room was great. Yeah. And the, uh, was it the Thing Invisible? I really enjoyed mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. Then there was the silly one with the horse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it does feel like he's going through the motions almost for like numbers five and six. And he just, even with Hunt Jarvet, like, while it still resembles the first six the most out of those last three, it just feels like a really needed break where the scenery changes, the methods change, the vibe changes, like, and he does it really well. Yeah. The hog is, you know, different and it's arguably not Hodson, but it ties into it in a really good way. Yeah. It's at least based on an idea by him. Yeah. So... And yeah, taking it to the sea uh, made a lot of sense to me. I think Hodgson writes that stuff really well. Oh, yeah, I don't definitely. necessarily think we needed to see another English landlord's, Irish landlord's castle or something like that. Like, you know, I mean, it's a cool setting for a few stories, but it doesn't have to be all the time. You right. know, it's, it's like these massive sprawling manor houses. And I don't know. It's cool. But taking it to the ocean just brought it an extra touch of authenticity that I think it's just Hodgson's own experience, you know? Mm-hmm. And he always writes like people like sea captains and, and stuff really well. So the, there aren't that many memorable supporting characters in the Karnaki stories, but the captain of the, the Jarvis is definitely one of the few that you kind of remember besides yeah. Karnaki himself. So what's your um, number five pick? So for my uh, fifth pick, I did choose Arctic. <laughs> <laughs> it is here not not only for the work itself, but also because the background behind it. I think it's Anna Adolf learning how personal this was to her did endear me quite a bit to it. And um, also it has the sentimental value of being the first work I led on for the podcast. Yeah. So it, I have an affection for it because of that as well. Is it hard to follow? Yes. <laughs> Would I blame anyone for finding it a bad read? No. Do I find myself still thinking about it quite a bit? Yes. (laughs) It's so weird and surreal in style and plot that I I have a lot of respect for it. And I I was recently watching some videos on outsider art and music, you know, stuff like the Shags and uh, Henry Darger, who's like this guy who wrote this bizarre... Yes, yeah, that yeah. like ten. What is it like ten thousand? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, epic. and I, I think that Adolf fits in with that. Absolutely, um, there's 100%. like this, there's that authenticity and like a genuine spirit to it, and I think it makes it worth reading. So it, it just really sticks out to me. Yeah, it's such a unique piece of art, and I think the only thing that we've covered like remotely comparable on the podcast is the Cavendish, just because mm-hmm. it's like. Yeah. So out there and they're coming from like totally different backgrounds and the yeah. plots and the moods are different, but like they both feel like so incredibly strange in that outsider way mm-hmm. that it's just a completely unique vibe that you just don't really get from a lot of these authors at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really like how those feel and play out in the surrealistic imagery and just how weird everything is. But 
with the authorial intent to be like not to make it intentionally weird like it's not like somebody's saying like oh i'm gonna make this like psychedelic trippy masterpiece sure. or yeah. whatever and like try to set out to make it as weird as possible it's just kind of what comes naturally to somebody like anna adolf when she tries yeah. to write this story and yeah. it's just like, fascinating. It's, it's genuine like, yeah really right. from the heart yeah i don't really like i did like the way she publicized her own work you know mm. and she she wrote those things into the newspaper and it was like behold my great masterpiece <laughs> you know <laughs> had a lot of uh, a lot of guts to it, I guess at least. So yeah, it's the, I don't know. I'm I'm glad that it made your list. Honestly, I don't really have anything more to say about it though, besides what I said earlier. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> right, I guess uh, my number five is yeah. Jean Ray and the Mind Salter. Yeah, uh, that was my number four. Cool. Yeah, this That's is a, cool. Just, that one's on my list too. So right. we'll talk about it all together, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. No, <laughs> yes. it's a yeah. great piece of weird fiction, awesome imagery, a really cool plot. I mean, the mind salter itself is a minor component of it, but really sucks you in, has incredible atmosphere and yes. a lot going for it. And it feels much quicker than the word count. I mean, we were talking mm. about the Dixon torpedo, you know, needing a break for <laughs> what's a much shorter story than this one, whereas this one just kind of pulls you in. And it, yeah, I definitely read this one in one setting. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. The first oh, yeah. Time. yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I didn't want to stop, and and the atmosphere really was great, and just like the implications of the story were just really cool. Like he didn't really spell a lot of it out, but I could kind of feel it there, and in the end, it kind of comes through when like there's this really vivid scene of this weird wizard character kind of like hovering on the water and like screaming at the guy like don't smash the crystal you're destroying knowledge and power and like i'll give you everything damn you curse you and like you know it was just so it was so cool it was just so cool and the fact that it was another sea adventure just when i wanted a sea adventure too was was great the characters even though they're not exactly like three-dimensionally sketched in the modern sense they're really like well drawn and you feel you feel bad when they all start to die yeah i I was going to bring up i i really like the the characters like they feel very fun and eccentric and and it does yeah it does hurt when they die you you feel really bad about it and i think it does add emotional weight when those characters are fleshed out they're not just Mm -hmm. like mannequins there to be killed Yeah, not just bodies. Unlike the one thing that is the mannequin there to be killed. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, the reason this was actually, uh, I'm, I'm going to like, uh, rather than just talk about the stories again, I'll, I'll say that this was my, my number two pick. Okay. And mm. it's there because after reading this, I'm like, you know, I developed a bit of a thing about Jean Ray and I just wanted to read everything that I could. And so I read mm. every short story I could find as well as the novel Malpertuis. And I loved it. I loved his style. I love his weird, morbid sense of humor. I love the darkness that comes through sometimes. And But yeah, there's there's a real humor to it and a real pathos as well. Like he has this, he has this weird ability to very, very suddenly make you identify with somebody like in this really like startling and quick way. And it's like there for a second and then it's gone. You're like, well, Okay, you know, like, I, I suddenly understand something about this person now.
So Mount Portuis had all these mythological resonances to it and all these connections to the gods of Olympus and stuff. And I thought the way he worked that in there was really, really clever mm-hmm. in that, if I may talk about Mount Portuis for a little bit more, but it was sure. like, yeah. he set up this crazy, incredible gothic melodrama of like this classic situation where this patriarch of a family is about to die and like all these people are fighting over his resources and like is he gonna make a will like does he have like what what are we gonna get his stuff and from that it just expands into this super weird morbid strange story that brings in yeah like all these all these elements from greek mythology and stuff like that and it turns really fantastical in a way that you just don't expect it is super clever Mm -hmm. it reminded me of the hearing trumpet a little bit and just the unexpected places it went from where it started and i was just like so far that's all the genre i've been able to find is like maybe 14 short stories and my pertuis but i've enjoyed them all i really like genre i'm glad that we did him on the podcast it was a perfect way to get introduced to this author if you read the mind salter in the weird anthology it's followed up immediately by a shadowy street, mm-hmm. which is also by him. And like, I think there's only one other instance where they had the same author show up twice back to back. So it's like, you know, and it's pretty, the shadowy street is maybe an even more incredible story than the mind Salter. So mm-hmm. that's just like, yeah, John Ray is great. If I learned anything about new authors to check out this year, it was probably him. So yeah. that's why he was my number two. Yeah. I definitely want to read more of his stuff. And um, I I also wanted to say, uh, since you mentioned uh, connecting it with the hearing trumpet, I was going to say that I feel like he and Carrington have like very similar humor. Yeah. They kind of have a very dry, very kind of uh, dark kind of humor. It's morbid, but very amusing. Yeah. uh, Yeah. I I feel like those two might have gotten along. Okay. Mm. If they knew each other. I guess they talked to each other in French. (laughs) yeah they could (laughs) she could have said i don't understand your stupid belgian french (laughs) 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 yeah yeah so uh let me see whose turn is it now uh i think it's yours right yeah for number four that's i i had mine salter for number four as well so james did you give her number five am i you started five. off, right? Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, sorry. I, I, yeah. All right. Yeah, I'm also a little <laughs> 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 that uh, the uh, fire alarm broke my stride. I was <laughs> not sure where I was for a second. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, Jam. I guess you're on your number four pick then, right? Okay. My number four is the No Man's Land in Space by Lee Brackett, and <laughs> that's my number three. That's my number two. Oh, cool! <laughs> all right, so we all we all have this on our list. That's that's really cool. I put this on here because even though I think this was kind of you know this this was a pretty short story. This is pretty. It's it's a quick read, and it's not necessarily one of the deepest things that we've done on the podcast, but it certainly is one of the most resonant in terms of like yeah, this feels it feels like so much science fiction that I know. It feels like the essence of this really action-packed, like, hot and fiery pulp story, you know, where, like, everything just hits the ground and just goes and doesn't stop. And all the world-building is done naturally within the story. 
it goes into this weird horror territory towards the end with the remote-controlled zombies. And it was just a really, really cool story. Mm-hmm. It just feels like if you didn't know Lee Brackett and you read this story, you would probably want to read more. You would probably want to be going there more often and seeing what she does. And I think this in combination with the letter that she wrote to Amazing, it just kind of like, it makes you want to know what she's about and what she can do. And this wasn't her first story, but it was pretty early on for her. So it was a really good story for us to do, I think, on the podcast for the Amazing episode, because she didn't really end up sticking with Amazing very much mm-hmm. after this. She kind of like sounded very helpful in her letter, but I think she just found a better, a better, more suitable home for her stories. And it was just, yeah, it's just sort of the start of a real legacy in sci-fi writing. And there's a lot of action. There were a lot of shades of gray kind of characterizations. It was violent and dark. And uh, it was a really good story. Yeah, the darkness and the grim ending really contrasts with her letter, which is like bright and whimsical and cheery and funny and it yeah. really showcases kind of both sides of her and yeah it, mm-hmm. it makes you want to read more and yeah i love i love this one absolutely and yes i just love a good pulp story like this and it just really checks all the boxes for me yeah i was very recently like a couple of days ago i had a conversation with someone in my post colonial theory class about westerns because they oh, cool. they were a big fan of westerns mm-hmm. and we were kind of talking a bit about like the Western is sort of this, there's a, an apocalyptic feeling to Westerns where it's like, it's the end of an era. It's the end of like this idea of manifest destiny and Western expansion. And yeah. I feel like this story at the very end, the hopelessness of it has that same apocalyptic feel. It's very nihilistic in a way, but in, in a real, it's a way that I, I really enjoy. And I, before that, of course, the pace, the action is done really well it's executed in a in a really like it really grabs you it's interesting that you're talking about the kind of apocalyptic themes of a western because a lot of them literally take place in a desert and i guess i kind of didn't really tie that to this story when i did my summary of it but the asteroid functions just as a desert like it's this desolate brutal harsh environment that yeah, really kind and of. There's this like kind little town sort of stuck in the middle of yeah. it. that's yes. completely lawless. That has all these like the you middle know, of nowhere. It is a no man's land in space. Exactly. Itself. Yeah. Have you guys watched any of the Easterns? No. From the Soviet Union, so it's their version of the Western. It's uh-huh. the Eastern. Okay. So a lot of these <laughs> stories take place during the Russian Civil War. Um, mm around the time of the revolution, basically, where the Red Army is yeah. fighting the White Army. Pretty much the, the atmosphere that Mikhail Bulgakov grew up in, where, the, yeah, that, that, that's the total vibe of it, I'm sure. Yeah. Right. But the stories take place in Central Asia, which is their desert, hostile, remote territory. Oh. There's a lot of these movies. White Son of the Desert is awesome. If you haven't seen it, I would highly recommend it. It's mm-hmm. a really, really good movie. So when was that made? In the 1960s. Okay. Oh, a lot of them were made around that time, uh, 60s and so 70s. So just uh, with the boom of the American Westerns. Then. Yeah, I mean, the American Westerns has been pretty much a thing for 100 years at that point. I mean, we... I mean, on film, though. Yeah. Like, uh, the, the 50s the fifties are considered the original Western boom, right? Like, 
on film. They had a lot of entries before that in the 30s and the 40s. I think the genre was pretty big. Okay. But yeah. Certainly a lot in the 50s and 60s as well. It starts to decline in the 70s, but yeah. yeah, 60s is kind of the tail end for the U.S. stuff. Okay. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. I, I just kind of thought like the 50s, you know, John Wayne, like yeah, and all that right. stuff. I mean, yeah, you do get a couple of things a little earlier with like Stagecoach and stuff. Is, is That's like the 30s as well, isn't right. it? Right, yeah. And I, I think John Wayne's career even starts in, was it the 30s that he starts off doing those kind of westerns? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I don't really know a lot about the western. For some reason, I just never, like, besides the spaghetti ones, I just right. never really... Well, yeah. that's, that's what I know the best, too, because, I mean, they're, yeah. they're close to the gritty genre stuff that I think we all really like. Mm-hmm. And yeah. for me, anyway, the American Westerns are too sanitized, too, I guess, patriotic in a way that just doesn't mm-hmm. sit right with me. The whole white Christian guy conquering the native West by divine right or whatever. It's just like, uh, uh, I don't need to hear this kind of story. <laughs> Whereas the spaghetti Westerns, I think, really focus more on the darker underbelly of human nature. Like, they don't really give a shit about American imperialism. That's just kind of like the yeah. scenario it takes place in and the audience they want to exploit i i think a lot of those stories they tell are just kind of different by nature and and likewise the bracket story isn't really about expansionism or manifest destiny or anything like that in fact it's kind of critical of that in text of you know this guy yeah. running this chemical refinery <laughs> <laughs> blowing up the chemical they yeah put, right yeah the chemical refinery just exploding at the end of the story to yeah. add some extra tension to everything it's yeah like, yeah <laughs> i was like oh by the way you've been living on this powder keg the entire time yeah and now it's time for it to blow up so <laughs> yeah and then at the end of course the uh one of our dana's what is it? What is the situation he's in? I think his atmosphere is about to run out, basically. He has a lot of major problems. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't look good for him. He's, <laughs> no, no, he's no, about no. to yeah. face his demise, and he did so. He sacrificed himself for a man already dead. Yeah. yeah. That's my number four, and you guys have all that. I, I'm losing track of our numbers now, but I think that's okay. Yeah, I'm also losing yeah. track. So It would be you, Nate, because mine, be mine was mine Salter, so okay. I already did my So mine four. is... The Omega Force by oh. Ugonis. Interesting. Okay. So, possibly a big part of the reason why I enjoy this one is the translation process and just yeah. kind of diving into the language. And I mentioned earlier that the Catalan story was incredibly difficult for me to translate. And this one was also difficult for me to translate. I would say probably the most difficult of the Spanish stories I've done. But it was in a very rewarding way because this one has such... Edgar Allan Poe vibes to it. Yeah. And I love Edgar Allan Poe. And (laughs) (laughs) even somebody who is heavily influenced by him and kind of capturing that mood, I think it just plays off really well for me. It's a great horror story, and it has a lot of cool discussion of acoustics and resonance and that kind of thing. And, you know, as evidenced by our early discussion on how I write some of the music for the podcast. I'm really interested in the mathematical side of how sounds piece together and a sound that's loud enough to blow your brains out. Just awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I, I really like this one a lot. Yeah. I, I had not thought about this one for the top five, but it is a very, it is a good story. And I, yeah, it's, the concept about of it is really interesting and it does have that, that Poe vibe, which oh, totally. 
Is that a foreshadowing for what might be next in your list? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I liked it a lot too. I, I definitely think that it was... I mean, Lugones is probably among all the, the things that we've translated from Spanish. I think that that is... He's probably, for me, the most interesting anyway. Mm. I mean, I like Nervo, but there's there's some content there that spiritual obsessions and stuff that I don't I don't quite connect with, I guess. Yeah, so I guess it'll be interesting when you guys read The Last War. Because, yeah. like, Lugonus for me, like, I really like, but he's like the Karnaki stories where he follows a formula. Like, the three Lugonus stories, like, they, they follow the same beats. Okay, you know, I get it. But it's a good formula. <laughs> Nervo, the soul giver, and The Last War couldn't be any more different. And... Yeah, You know, we're going to hint at future plans next year, and I think we're going to cover that sometime in 2023, but I, I'm really excited for you guys to read that one, because I really like it a lot, and it, it couldn't be any more different than Soul Giver. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I did enjoy Soul Giver, but I, I do think that the Lagone story was better. But I, I, I'm interested in reading The Last War. Yeah, I think you guys are really like that, and there's going to be some very, very obvious parallels to a popular modern science fiction franchise that you should pretty much pick up upon on the bat. And I'm kind of surprised uh, that this one hasn't been cited as a precursor for that one for. I think I know what you mean, actually, from from what I read about Last War so far. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll definitely get to it when we get there. Okay, we can save it for that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah interesting. You're, that's a good point. But yeah, we're talking about Lagones, but... Yeah, I, I like the Poe-esque formula. I like the, the weird science. And yeah, the acoustical stuff was really interesting. Yeah. I kind of like this, the kind of stories where you get a whole bunch of information and then there's a gap and like you kind of go forward in time and you're like, hey, we haven't heard from this guy for a while. Let's see what's happening with him. And then they show up and he, like, he's dead because his experiment's <laughs> gone wrong. And you're like, <laughs> it's like oh, what happened? That that. <laughs> Remember the vivid scene that he described where, like, yeah. his brains, like, flew all over the wall and everything, yeah. and the doctor was, like, tasting it and going, hmm, <laughs> tastes like brains. <laughs> 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 no, it was a really good story. Uh, interesting pick. I I guess I liked it, but it was, it was maybe one of those things where I think maybe I would have liked it more if it was a little longer, actually. Mm. Then I could have made my list, but I guess for whatever reason, it didn't really quite register with me enough to make the list. But it is a really good story, so I'm glad that I'm glad that you picked it. Yeah, I mean, I guess translating this, I probably read this five or six times all the way through in both English yeah. and Spanish. So I mean, mm -hmm. I I spent a lot of time with this one. You spent, yeah, yeah, you spent a good amount of time with it. That's that's also a good point. And uh, I don't know. I think I did read it twice, but I I. Unlike with the Soul Giver, I didn't really feel that it was a lot to comment on with the translation. Like it, it seemed like it was a bit more straightforward to me, anyway. Lugonus was tough for me. I mean, he uses a lot of idioms and phrases that it's like, okay, I get what you're saying in Spanish, but how do I phrase this in English where right. it doesn't sound so like totally awkward and unnatural? And I think that was what I had the most problems with. Mm. All right, my turn then. Yes. Okay. So my number three pick is Cirrus by Olaf Stapleton. That's uh, my number two. Oh, oh, okay. Well, he's not on my list, so no, go for it. That's interesting. You know, I mean, I, I know we had some discussions about it, and it was a yeah. book that actually engendered a lot of talk. And I think 
that's one of the reasons why I wanted to include this. I mm. I think we all kind of agree that the last quarter of the book maybe mm. is not really as strong as the rest of it. Yeah. And it takes a couple of turns that are a little bit unfortunate. I think like everything after Francis dies maybe is a little bit like just sad and kind of upsetting. But I think that the rest of it was just so good and the yes. concept was so cool. And I don't know, sometimes I feel like maybe I'm the most immature person on this podcast, but like <laughs> th this whole, I guess, way that Stapleton described Sirius's adolescence and his kind of like trying to come to terms with a world that was not designed for somebody like him. It resonated a lot with me. I really felt like, not to sound cheesy or corny or anything like that, but I really felt like it was speaking to a part of me a little bit where I could really relate to it. And I kind of yeah. felt like, yeah, I'm not like Sirius. I'm maybe not as smart as Sirius and I'm not a dog. But like, <laughs> you know, it just kind of felt like, yeah, I get this. I get why why he's frustrated. And I get why, you know, everybody's like around him is like, yeah, we want to help. We want his... I guess you could say his father, Francis, is just basically like, well, I don't want to really, I don't really understand why you're so upset. You know, like, here, I got you this nice place in the university and everything. And uh, I know it's weird being the only intelligent dog around, but surely we can make this work. And there's kind of this, like, communication gap in between it, them, where it's like, he really cares for his creation and all that. It's kind of like the opposite of Frankenstein, where... Mm -hmm. Frankenstein couldn't give a shit about the monster, you know, like he doesn't <laughs> he doesn't even want to have anything to do with them. No. This guy does, but at the same time he doesn't really get it. He doesn't get why he has all the problems that he does. And you know, I really felt for Sirius and I really I felt his moments of triumph and I felt his moments of frustration. And there were parts of the book that really got inside me a lot. And so, you know, it's, yeah, all that other stuff towards the end, like, it's kind of unfortunate. And there's one specific decision that he made that I wish Stapleton hadn't really gone there. But besides that, this is a really cool story. It really did the thing that I think science fiction can do so well, where it puts you in the head of a creature that thinks like, as Campbell said, John W. Campbell, that is, said, show me a creature that is not a man, but thinks as well as a man. And I think that Stapleton really, really hit on something here and made a really awesome creation in the form of Sirius. I really enjoyed his, even his, like, you know, solitary wanderings among the Welsh, <laughs> the Welsh fields being a sheepdog. Like, even that stuff was really, really cool. Yeah. And I, I, I really liked it. So yeah. that's why it's my number three. <laughs> yes, I, I agree that, you know, the last quarter of the novel maybe is uh, take some questionable turns. But I mentioned with Medusa, one of the reasons I enjoyed it so much was the discussion. And I really think that our discussion of Sirius was a great one that we had. And I maybe I'm a bit of, like I said, maybe I'm a bit of a hypocrite for having this book so high when I was kind of ragging on unfinished communication, because there is that aspect of maybe this is partially a justification on Stapleton's part for an affair that he had. But yeah. I, I still feel like 
yeah, the, the, the rest of the novel is just so well constructed and well written. I love the prose of the musings of Sirius. And it's a very intimate, you know, we talked a bit about how it also has a distance, but there is also an intimacy to it that I I really enjoy. And there's this kind of balance between the two that, yeah, I just, I think it's very well done. And Sirius is much more sympathetic character than oh, yeah. Frankenstein's monster in that, like, while he has his moods of wild instinct and kills random animals and stuff like that. He's not like a child murderer for no reason. Like Frankenstein's monster is. Yeah. It's not just for vengeance. Right. Exactly. He kind of reverts back to what he perceives to be his natural state of like the natural Mm -hmm. food chain order or whatever. And he's like living out this lifestyle that he thinks is supposed to be natural, but it just doesn't, come natural to him it's like this like you were saying like he's living in a world that is not meant for him and yeah. he kind of captures that a lot better in some ways than frankenstein's monster does because frankenstein's mm-hmm. monster is ultimately while we feel bad for him that he's shunned from humanity and that he is an outcast and his creator abandons him and all this he is at the end of the day a brutal murderer <laughs> and like Shelley makes no bones about that whereas i think in general Sirius is a much more three-dimensional character even though the monster character of frankenstein is very interesting and compelling on its own Sirius is a more i guess sympathetic and more relatable as a realistic character yeah yeah, there were there were elements that I mean, you know, there were there were definitely elements of triumph that I really felt. I mentioned there was one scene in particular where Sirius went to a church and mm. he was like listening to the sermon, and they tried to kick him out of the church, and like it was it was kind of mocking, and it was just so well done. You know, I wanted to cheer yeah. him on, and then after that, he kind of became friends with the rector of a church, and joined in with the congregation and stuff, but they didn't know what to make of it. <laughs> and it was just like this really cool thing that, that I think Stapleton did where, where it's just like showing the alienation, but also so much humanity as well. Yeah. And I don't know. It was just really good. I even thought the relationship between Sirius and Ploxy, although it definitely was a little bit discomforting, I guess, in a way, I liked the way that it was challenging. I liked the way that he was trying to kind of push at these, especially 1940s British sensibilities of like what you were supposed to be able to portray and stuff like that. And like, even now, like even obviously, like, it's just weird. (laughs) But these are the kind of things that when we talk about sci-fi romances and where we talk about like, interspecies things and what's going to happen. Well, that one movie just won Best Picture. Yeah. What was it called? The Shape of Water or something? Oh, yeah. Shape of Water. Yeah. Right. It's like, not necessarily supposed to make a snot squirm, right? I like that he went there, even though I do think it's weird, too. You know, I just, I, I like that he actually was willing to take it that far. So, I like Sirius a lot. I, I that's my number three. <laughs> yeah, Nate. 
So my number three, as alluded to previously, is Edgar Allan Poe. The narrative of yes. Arthur Gordon Pym. Of so that's Edgar. one of my runners up. Okay. Mm, yes. Yeah. yeah. I had read this before we did the podcast and absolutely loved it. And again, loved it when I read it for the podcast. It is a bit disjointed and it feels like four different short stories kind of paste it together, but they all work. And it's not like a Leslie Stone where the elements don't come together in a satisfying way. I think all the elements, while they don't necessarily mix, can be easily taken on their own and separated from one another and seen as a more cohesive entity than something like Out of the Void. And the tension that you feel that Poe conveys during the shipwreck segments of trying to survive off of no food and the cannibalism angle, the way it shifts into the weird Antarctic voyage, it's just such a roller coaster of a ride and absolutely awesome at the end that one final scene of the strange entity (laughs) you know just like encompassing the whole field of vision and world it's just so overpowering it's completely unforgettable for me yeah it's definitely a story where i don't mind at all that it's very episodic like i actually appreciate that in a way like it's not a complaint that sometimes like sometimes i feel like people nowadays maybe have this like crazy expectation that everything should hang together perfectly and there should be like exact lines drawn between every point of a story so that everything just lines up just so right and i don't necessarily i don't necessarily expect that or always want it and i i kind of feel like poe did a really cool job here in not only telling a story but telling the life of this young arthur gordon pym in a way like you know, we get to see him in his earliest sea voyage, and it is this kind of crazy drunken escapade, and it feels almost lighthearted, I guess, in comparison to what's to come. Oh, it's but very at the same time, I mean that that first incident can easily be read as a comedy. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. There's some very funny moments in it. What is there's the part when he meets with that? Is it his? He's uh, walking by his father his grandfather his grandfather and he's just barely able to make sure that he doesn't recognize him and it it, like that part i remember laughing quite a bit at that you know it was a a funny moment and you get that for quite a bit of that beginning oh for sure section and then yeah it just goes into a much darker territory i love how like when he goes on the the boat with his buddy right augustus and and Mm -hmm. he's like augustus just seems perfectly normal and Arthur's, like, too inexperienced to realize how drunk he is. And yeah. he's just like, yeah, everything's fine. We're just going along. <laughs> We're going to have a ride. And, like, it's going to be fun. And, and then all of a sudden he's like, uh-oh. Uh, actually, he's smashed. Uh, oh, no, he's passed out. What am I going to do? <laughs> it was so good. And then the book went to some pretty dark places in the following episodes and mm-hmm. it was during the height of that january march period where all i wanted to read was these stories so yeah so it's just like it was awesome and this is early for the genre too 
Like we yeah. covered some Zonia and that was from 1820. And when we did that episode, that was, we, we remarked that that was kind of early for nautical seafaring fiction. Yeah. And you know, this one's 1838 and I had, Revisited Moby Dick during the summer, so it was yeah, maybe like three or four months after we covered this or so, uh, maybe a little later, but I was, again, struck by the similarities between the two in places, because it, it, it might be totally coincidental, but it might be an intentional reference, but there's a very small scene at the beginning of Moby Dick where yeah. they meet the crew of the Grampus. Mm-hmm. And, you know, well, mind you, that is the name of a whale as well. Yeah. So right. But I, I mean, it, it's possible that Melville wasn't referencing it at all. But again, it's one of those interesting things, like the Tolkien and Dickens thing that I mentioned earlier. That it's just kind of you know neat putting the two side by side when you read them so close together. Um, mm. You pick up on those little things. Yeah. I mean, Moby Dick is obviously the superior novel, but I think Poe was influential enough and certainly had his name around a fair amount that Pym was yeah. probably quite influential in his own right for the whole seafaring nautical <laughs> voyage fiction, which again, I think when we covered some Zonia, we talked about how we thought that it was earlier dating than that, but there really wasn't a lot of a major nautical seafaring fiction before like Pym for major works. I mean, I, I don't really think that many people read Simzonia and there were a fair amount of like minor things like that, but yeah, Pim is kind of early on. Yeah, definitely. And with Simsonia, like I think there was just the one thing that we sort of came up with. What was that guy's name? Daniel, some kind of some kind of non-fictional sea account, and we saw we read some excerpts from it, and it, it looked pretty exciting, right? Like it looked like oh, Nathaniel Ames. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it was like an early example of a non-fictional sea story, I guess. We wondered if it influenced Simsonia and whether even like there was some speculating whether that was the same author. Yeah, right. That was a whole really question that. piece that we yeah. talked about in the New Yorker. Yeah. I mean, we think it's Sims just because it seems dogmatic and a little bit like not written by somebody who has the greatest grasp of storytelling, perhaps. No, it's um, a bad book. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. Simsonia sucks. <laughs> But uh, yeah, Pim is definitely awesome, and Jules Verne thought so too. But neither of those yes. stories actually made my top five, although I did consider Pim, and yeah. it was one of my runners-up. Yeah, I was considering Pim as well. Cool. Yeah, I'll mention my other runner-up at the end, unless somebody else mentions it in this, but I don't think that'll happen at this point. Yeah, I guess it looks like nobody considered Jules Verne for either of our list, which, you know, I, I'd rank that one probably somewhere in the middle-ish. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was. A, I thought there was some interesting concepts and some interesting things in Vern, but I didn't consider it as a, a top pick. Yeah, nor a bottom. I mean, yeah. no, no, no. It wasn't bad at yeah. all, but not a favorite. Yeah, it definitely doesn't deserve negativity. But I, I didn't really. It wasn't as good as Pam. No, put mm-hmm. it that way. So. Yeah. And, and the fact that Pim didn't make my list, you know, is like, yeah, I, I don't really, I think it's it's a little bit difficult for Vern to make a top list at this point, just because his formula, uh, although I guess he does deviate from it a few times during his career, it's a little bit, sometimes like just the lack of character conflict and stuff like that 
does, I think, take him down a little bit for me occasionally. When Vern is good, he's really, really good. But I do think sometimes, like, it's easy for him to just get into this mode where it's just a bunch of people looking at stuff. And there's not a lot of tension. There's not a lot of drama. So, and in his book, his sequel to Pym, all right, it was cool that he decided that he needed to write a sequel to Pym, but at the same time, he wanted to demystify a lot of the weird stuff in, in Pym. And I don't really <laughs> think that was necessary. You know, no. I mean, it's just like a lot of fan fiction is not necessary. So, <laughs> yeah. Just let the mystery be. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. the best part of Poe is mystery. <laughs> so uh, I think it's you now, Gretchen. Uh, well, I, I have already kind of, had my favorites covered except number one, which I feel like might come up, but I, I've i already had numbers three and two, so... Yeah, likewise. I think we might have all picked the same number one. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I only have one more, too. And who wants to say it? <laughs> well, uh, I guess I will say that the number one of my bottom list and the number one of my top list are the same. So yeah. is that... Uh, an accurate description of your guys, number one. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I should say that um, while making this top five, I did cheat by having this certain rule where I would only have one work per author, as well as I try to do one oh. work per topic. But I I did this because I knew it would mostly be Hodgson if I if I didn't, <laughs> and of course the one that I I chose for number one. It's House on the Borderland. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought too, should I have should I make that rule too? But in the end I decided not to. So my number mm-hmm. five and my number one are by the same author. Mm-hmm. And House on the Borderland is it. And and I also felt a little bit bad because it's a reread for me. Uh, mm-hmm. I've read this book like four times now. So, you know, I it just the fact that I have reread it so many times probably says yeah like i like this book a lot the the atmosphere is incredible again it's a lot of what you see in weird fiction like this like and the genre is another good example there's so much stuff that's implied but it's like really cool to think about you know you're like maybe not everybody would feel the same implications but i guess i think particularly if you read a lot of this kind of fiction you kind of feel it you know you kind of feel like you're reading a story and it's really eerie and atmospheric on its own, but there's like something greater than the story going on. Whereas like there's more that you're not seeing and it's that extra thing that adds this feeling of cosmicism to it, I guess. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's a very strange book, but there's a certain logic underpinning everything. And there's a certain like, once you kind of, read into what's happening and you go okay so you know first he's under siege from these beings that are like kind of from this dark plane dimension but they also kind of might be from the future and there's weird the time journey which is this awesome cosmic vista of like seeing the end of the universe yeah just utterly fantastic yeah. Yeah. And, and like it's pretty early on for, for this kind of thing. It's like he took the the elements from Wells' The Time Machine where he goes past past the Eloy and past the Morlocks to the end where he sees a couple of really, really strange things. It's like he took that and expanded upon it 
manifold. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just, yeah, and the whole, like, the whole, you know, first half with the swine things holding the house under siege is, like, really tense. And then when he gets back from the cosmic journey, the tone kind of changes and it becomes really sad. Yeah. And it's just like, you, you kind of get the feeling, even though he doesn't really spell it out too much, you kind of get the feeling of this old, bitter, kind of not friendly man, like reconsidering his life and being like, mm-hmm. man, I really screwed up. Like, I don't have any friends. I haven't been very nice to my sister. And I miss my dog. And it's just like, damn, man. It's just, you know, all of a sudden, there's, there's the yeah. things that he's gone through just suddenly feel like it means something. And yeah. a part of you is like, I wish he could come through this okay, because I'd like him to learn from this and be better. But actually, I know from what kind of story this is, that he's not going to be okay. And you just know the doom is coming, and you can feel it approaching, and like, you know, the way he, he spells it out, it's, you know, the doom is coming, but it doesn't mean when it comes, it's any less effective. Yeah. I mean, like that last half of the novel, it's really just such a, it goes from being that, like you said, like the siege narrative to this meditative epic that like deals with loss on a cosmic scale. And it explores loneliness and, and mourning in these like really grand terms. It's just really incredible that that especially like the first part is just a really great suspenseful work but then that that second half is when it just becomes incredible yeah definitely the tackling of grief on a cosmic scale i think is really impressive at the way he is able to pull it off Mm -hmm. he does a great job with it and it's very mournful like Mourning the whole universe as it passes. Yeah. It's pretty incredible, Yeah, I'd say. Yeah, and of course he got to work in his body horror fungus oh, yeah. thing yes. in there, too, somehow. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I went into House on the Borderland with uh, pretty high expectations because it was a work I had been wanting to read for several years. It was one of the first, like, weird fiction works that I had ever heard of. Oh, cool. So it was one that I had been kind of building up and it was quite delightful to have my expectations not met, but also to have it excel those expectations. Yeah, no, oh, really absolutely. Cool. This is a masterpiece to say the least. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that you guys liked it that much because I know this is a first read for both of you. And yeah. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like one of those books like Voyage to Arcturus that's been with me for 15, uh, almost 20 years now, I guess, 15 years at least, where, you know, it's just kind of, yeah, like, these books are always going to stay with me now, like, I'm I'm never going to, I'm never going to put them aside completely, you know, I'll probably come back to them again. I don't know, I I, to me, this is like, last year, Voyage to Arcturus was that book. These two books are, I mean, they're not necessarily that similar, but they have a similar weight, I guess, in my consciousness. Mm. So, yeah, that those two, and they're both very good examples of very, very weird early 20th century fiction from Britain. So, yeah. Yeah, I would like to find a good audiobook version of this one. I found one of Voyage to Arcturus, which the narrator is American, and I don't know if it really 
fits what I want to listen to. I kind of picture somebody yeah. with like a thick Scottish accent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Starkness Observatory. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. I, I've been really into the audiobooks lately, and a good narrator really makes a story excel that much more. Yeah. I listened to the Rudyard Kipling ABC stories today and yesterday. There's two oh, cool. various running around, and the narrator on those is just awesome. He gets into He did the, a really, really good job. He, he did, yeah. 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 Especially, like, the way he brought the characters to life in the ABC story. Yeah. Like, they yeah. Did, he just, like, yeah. Yeah, and the uh, version of Tolkien's Sir Gawain and the Green Knight I'm listening to now is narrated by... Terry Jones of Monty Python fame, so oh. he, he he does a great job with it. Cool. Have you seen his weird history documentaries? No, I haven't, but I've watched a couple of the Michael Palin travel documentaries. So it, okay. it, it's kind of interesting how some of the Python guys get into the documentary scene after the comedy. Yeah, my friend Jonas, who created the actual theme piece for Chronos, right, yeah. showed me the Terry Jones history documentaries. There's like a medieval, lots of medieval history kind of stuff, and they're done in a very weird way. Hmm. Like it's it's done, it's definitely got a personality to it. It's not just a documentary. It feels <laughs> kind of different. There's a lot of weird enactments and stuff like that, and it's they're they're kind of fun and strange. So yeah, that's it's. I, I can totally picture him doing that kind of elvish talk and and the. the the high speech of the like you were you were talking about the contrast between the uh, Hobbit characters who kind of speak Irish like. Yeah, right. It's like, yeah, it's interesting how Tolkien does it because he again, you know, translated Sir Gawain and from yeah and Beowulf. Yeah, so I mean, I guess they're different languages, sure, pretty yeah. much entirely. But Chaucer Middle English, I think, is much easier to understand without a translator than the. Gawain author English is you know Chaucer was around London and his Middle English is more I guess much more of a precursor to modern English than the Gawain author's English was so it, it incorporates a lot of older words that didn't make it into the English spoken today as opposed to Chaucer but the alliterative nature of the Gawain poem really comes across in the Tolkien translation. Like, he's really good at keeping the... I guess rhyme scheme and meter is a, the wrong way to put it, because it, Tolkien even says in his introduction that that's not what the Gawain poet was concerned with. He's more concerned with the alliterative nature of, of the words. So uh, basically every word of the same sentence starts with the same letter. And there's this one awesome, awesome chapter of... James Joyce's Ulysses, where he does his version of <laughs> Gawain-era English alliterative poetry. Uh -huh. And it's just, like, breathtaking goosebumps level of, like, parody. I'm like, I mean, like, it's the amount of talent he puts into the prose and the evocative imagery it brings to you versus, like, what's actually happening in the real world, which is these guys getting blackout drunk and pissing off all the staff of the maternity ward is just an incredible juxtaposition. <laughs> I mean, it's... <laughs> I... Yeah. I mean, I, I know Ulysses has this reputation of being this, like, incomprehensible, impenetrative block of 
deep philosophical texts, but it's just really not that way at all. It's a, yeah. a that, lot that's of Finnegan's Wake. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I still have to take a crack at that one myself. I'd like to, but uh, one of the things that people always say is it, it will seem that way if you don't. Like, there's so many references in it. You know, like, there's so many references to things that you will know if you've spent a lot of time studying in the English curriculum, like even basic school stuff, maybe. Yeah. But, like, if you haven't been brought up that way, it probably will seem kind of incomprehensible. Yeah, but in a way, it's like when we did the Jari novel, where the introduction yeah. says, like, he's making fun of these French authors. And yeah. if you know them, cool. And if you don't know them, it's like, okay, that's that's what he's doing here. Yeah, but you wouldn't know that if you didn't know them or you didn't have introductory material right, exactly. to tell yeah. you. Yeah. And that's, so that's why I think it's important probably to read a good annotated edition where yeah. you're like, yeah. I get, you know, like, I. If I don't understand what he's saying, I can at least read some commentary that'll kind of clarify it to me, right? So. Yeah, and it's one of those works that have been dissected to death. So I mean, the mm. commentaries out there, the audiobook version of Ulysses really does melt away a lot of the difficulty, which kind of arises from Joyce just being like not a fan of punctuation or like formatting. <laughs> like <laughs> some of the paragraphs are just like straight blocks of text. Um, and, and again, the audio book version just makes it melt away. That's cool. Um, yeah. I do feel like I really missed out. There was that class I, I think I mentioned in one episode, I can't remember which one, about that one course where they were teaching both Ulysses and Middlemarch. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not going to be available next year, but man, I, oh. I really would have liked to have taken that. But yeah, I, I am, I've only read a couple of stories from Dubliners by, by Joyce so far. So I would definitely like to give Ulysses a try. Yeah. Ulysses yeah. is, I think his masterwork i haven't read finnegan's wake yet i'm, I'm gonna get to it at some mm -hmm. point but um it, it's definitely in my opinion better than dubliner's or portrait mm -hmm. of the artist as a young man middlemarch is definitely an interesting work to pair it with because middlemarch kind of like is a part of that english pseudo-historical novel tradition that kind of mm -hmm. like gains popularity with tom jones and middlemarch references tom jones like a fair amount in text mm -hmm. and I don't know. It's an interesting lineage because Tom Jones is like a very, very long picaresque, but it's like a breezy long read. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, it's not like a Middle March or a Dickensian novel where there's like a billion characters you got to keep track of. It's just like the same two guys just going on adventures for 900 pages, but like mm. he makes it work. Yeah, I've always liked the picaresque novels. Yeah. Myself. Yeah. That's, that's probably why I like, you know, stuff like the the Dying Earth stuff from Fats so much, because it, it reads a lot like that. Right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm thinking for a future episode, we may just have to do the Dying Earth stories. But Yeah, well, I guess that segs nice way into what we're going to do for the future in 2023, right? Yeah. Uh, I did want to mention my runner-up, though, which was oh, The right. Birthstone Mass by uh, Harriet Spofford. Yeah. And very atmospheric work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I wanted to include that somehow just because I thought it was such an awesomely atmospheric piece of writing. It was really strange and eerie. Mm. Story-wise, it was pretty simple. There wasn't like, a, you know, try to summarize it. Um, there's not a lot that happens. I actually think that that 
excerpt from the story that we put in the beginning of the the podcast was like more telling you kind of what the story was like than my plot summary was. And right. that's just because yeah. like, you know, it just so it's just so weirdly stark and cold and picturesque and like I liked her other story that we read. It was really gothic and cool, but this one was like really, I don't know, it it culminated in some of that arctic adventure and sea adventure stuff that we've been reading, but it was also like the way she described the landscapes and stuff like that, you know, I mean, it made me kind of think of Lovecraft and his cyclopean cities and all that. And like, it was very hallucinatory. He kind of had like the main character felt that he was seeing godlike beings who may or may not have been there. It was really potent. I read it twice just because the first time I was like, I don't really know what I just read, but that was really cool. Let me read it again because I can't summarize that. <laughs> and so I read it again and it kind of felt like very, very much like a dream, but like that is in its own way, a little bit of a cliche, but to say that it felt like a dream in this case was a good thing. Like it felt Absolutely. like uh, yeah. kind of nightmarish, kind of like, again, like this guy learned nothing, came back and, but the thing is, it's so perfect because the way she starts the story is she's describing that he's under a curse. And it's like, oh, you know, at first I'm thinking, well, what's the curse? What's the curse? And it turns out the curse is just like some kind of weird perversity that makes like, you know, there's just this kind of weird family thing where they're very acquisitive and they don't need to be. And there's no reason for this guy to be looking for this super fantastical diamond. It just feels like compelled to do it. And he's got this fiance waiting for him back home. And all she wants to do is like, you know, settle down and, and have a good relationship and a nice house. And he's just like, yeah, going off to the Arctic. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It just, it was, it was a really cool story and there's just not enough for five. And so I, I made it a runner up. So yeah. So, yeah. No, I, I like this one a lot and I was looking for a good anthology of her fiction and there's just not one out there so no somebody needs to put one out there because this one and the ram displacement i think have both been anthologized a fair amount but i would assume that an author as prolific as her that had been writing for like decades by the time ram displacement came out i think this one was fairly early in her career yeah. but her career spanned like a good like what 40 or 50 years or something like that yeah at least 40 years yeah yeah, so publishers, come on. Harriet Prescott Spofford, put out a good anthology. Give us a really good Spofford anthology. Yeah. yeah, we deserve one. There is one available at Project Gutenberg, but it's a fraction of her supposed output. Right. Of dozens and dozens of stories. I think yeah. there's like six stories in there or something like that. And and I think it this I think it may it may be a book actually published in her lifetime. Like we need a modern reprint of a lot of her stories taken from different points in her career maybe with a little bit of commentary yeah yeah a nice collected stories publication yeah all right let's talk about the future then so our next book is kindred we've yes. all read it we all thought it was really interesting it's going to be a heavy discussion so i think i'm glad that we're only doing the one book for our next episode because i'm sure yeah. there'll be plenty to talk about even if it's not five hours long it doesn't matter because it's going to be hard to kind of segue from doing something like that. Mm -hmm. Definitely anybody who's listening 
and wants to read something that's, I guess, powerful and pertinent in its way. And it's not an easy read, but it is a quick read in the sense that I I didn't really want to put it down. I wanted to Mm -hmm. know how she was going to manage it. Yeah. And you also had mentioned, I believe, that this it would have been on your list if we included it. It would have been on mine, for sure. Mm. I would have ranked it at number two if we had included it. Yeah. Well, I should say, because I do really love this work, I do think I would have put it at number one. Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about it next year. Like, it'll be in the running for sure. But oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. It just didn't seem like, since we hadn't discussed it yet, you know, I just I didn't really want to... Well, we'll discuss it next time on Chrononauts, but yeah. there's this one book that we haven't talked about yeah, yet. Right. And, like, yeah, no, it's going to be a, a very lengthy discussion, I think. There's going to be a lot mm. to talk about, and it's going to be very seriously important subjects that still have resonance to the modern day. Um, and it plays with genre a lot, and it does a whole lot of things that I think are going to be very interesting to talk about. And when we do the best of 2023 i think we can all agree that it's probably going to be high in the running of our list even though you know (laughs) it's the only title we've covered that's going to be eligible so far off to a good start exactly yeah (laughs) so after reading kindred though i kind of just started thinking well i mean we are chrononauts but we're not necessarily the chronological chrononauts and we uh are kind of getting to this like time travel story that's very obviously influenced by older time travel stories, the likes of which we haven't really covered yet. So I do think that sometime before next spring or around next spring, covering Mark Twain's Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court and Sprague de Camp's Last Darkness Falls will be an episode that's coming up very soon. And I also want to do some other kind of historical time travel type stories. And I want to talk about that particular tradition. So I think that's going to be, uh, I think just doing Kindred has kind of put that more forward in my mind. And I think we're all Doctor Who fans here, so we can appreciate that angle of the genre. But we do have a lot of other cool stuff coming up. And I think we're going to do more traditional Chrononauts type style episodes, if, if you want to call them that, where we do the origins of certain kinds of tropes that are prevalent in modern science fiction. So you might see a little more things that are recognizable in the modern genre rather than these 19th century oddities and obscurities we've covered on the podcast. I think we're going to be doing a little bit in robots next year, as well as apocalyptic fiction and maybe digging into some of the other pulp magazines like we did with Amazing. We'll have to see where it takes us. I don't think we have a hard plan set in stone of exactly what we're doing for the next five episodes but we have a kind of good idea of where we want to take it and take it afterwards but certainly everything we do is subject to change pretty much up to the last minute i think we've found but it all works out in the end and i think the product has kind of come together in a pretty nice way and i'm certainly looking forward to some of the titles that we're going to be covering next year so without getting into specific titles i think some of the things that we've discussed I mean, yes, the themes of robots and artificial intelligence, I think, are going to get quite a few entries. Also, medical experiments, body modifications, mental modifications. I'd also think that, in a general sense, I would like to do more of these kind of host choice type episodes the way uh, we've done for Kindred. And I think, I don't know necessarily that we're going to stick to our 
host choices that we decided on last time. I mean, we'll see when we get to the next one what we decide to do. I I actually have a feeling that given the reading that's coming up on Chrononauts, I might actually want to change mine. But I do actually want to get Vance on there at some point. And I also want us to do short story episodes where we just kind of each pick two or three short stories and we select our stories. Everybody else reads them and we talk about them. I don't think we want to necessarily do 10 per episode uh, like we did last year. <laughs> it's a little bit much, but we stick to two stories each. I think that would probably be about perfect. And so in between all the themes and the host choices and doing those, I think next year will go by very fast. Yes. And I guess maybe on the translation front, I got my ass kicked by Catalan this year, but I think I'm going to dig into some of the Russian magazines and see if we can't pull anything out of the Soviet Union for you all, because I think there's some interesting stuff probably going on there that hasn't been translated for English-speaking readers yet. Certainly, the gaps in the ISFDB website would indicate that there's not quite everything has been cataloged and mined in the way that some of the other areas of science fiction have yeah and when you consider it's taken it's really taken a long time to mine all the american science fiction pulps like you know everybody knew about certain key authors forever but like we're still kind of discovering the minna urbans and we're still discovering some of these authors that maybe didn't get printed that much and so mm-hmm. haven't really had an opportunity to be covered and are maybe still pretty interesting as well as that i would definitely would like to focus on one or two of the other pulp magazines and kind of do what we did with the amazing episode the two american magazines that i would like to focus on are astounding and galaxy magazine so astounding got its start in the late 1930s and had a bunch of issues for a couple years before john w campbell took over to the editorship and kind of became one of the forerunning luminaries of american sf and shaped the way for many authors for better and worse and it'll be interesting to talk about him and his influence on the genre and how many people see that as a positive thing but some don't and we'll talk about his what he brought to the table not in terms of a writer so much but in terms of an editor and how that actually shaped a lot of what was to come in the united states and not just there because in his cadre of writers he had couple of well-known British writers and one or two Canadian writers even. So at Galaxy, kind of being the forerunner of the We Are Not a Western-style space opera magazine <laughs> kind of science fiction, you know, like getting its start in uh, 1950 or thereabouts. So it's kind of later to the game, next generation, kind of like, hey, we're sophisticated, we're satire, we're like... I mean, I don't love a lot of the stories published in that magazine, but... You know, it was definitely like a reaction in, in a way, you know, kind of pushing against some of the tropes. And that could be a good and a bad thing. And we're going to talk about that, too, because I think we all have a little bit complicated feelings about that. When it's a good thing to push against the tropes or when it might be a little bit too much, you know, you know, it might be like a Michael Moorcock and protesting a little bit too much when you're still telling the same kind of stories, but you're kind of insisting that you're not. <laughs> yeah. So, And I think we've reached the point now, and especially going into next year, that the genre has definitely become the genre. 
And of course, we're still going to cover the 19th century stories here and there when we can fit them into the podcast. But I think we're going to be covering a lot of stories from the 1930s and the 1940s from the American side of things that fit into that marketing audience. They do fit into that Gernsback idea of the hard sci-fi, and they do fit into these kind of narrative tropes that the audience expects from the authors. And I think the authors in turn play to what the audience is expecting in a way that just feels different from the 19th century people where it's kind of a more open playing. So we are open to any feedback that anybody might have. We're not necessarily going to take on board completely ideas that somebody might have for us to do, but we will definitely consider anything. So if anybody has any suggestions or possible directions that they think it might be interesting for us to explore. You can email us at chrononautspodcast at gmail.com and let us know. I don't really have anything else to add, I think, unless anybody has any other thoughts about the future of chrononauts. No, I don't really. I mean, this has been a great year in 2022. I think we've covered a lot of awesome stories. We've had some great discussions, and I think we're going to cover some really cool stuff in the future and cover some classics of the genre as well as bring some unknown stories to light and hopefully bring some stuff into the english language that hasn't been there before so that's kind of my goals with 2023 nice of course this is my first year doing this podcast and i remember first starting i i almost didn't do it i was very anxious before one of the first episodes we ever did but once i got past that ever since i confronted that I've had a a wonderful time discussing these works with both of you, and I look forward to the next year of doing that. No, and we're absolutely happy to have you on board. Yeah, I mean, it's been great doing the podcast with you, and you've provided a lot of really excellent insight on these stories, as well as done some good story selection. And yeah, looking forward to another year of cool science and weird fiction story exploration yeah i'm really happy that you joined us too and i I think that obviously like there's going to be early on some anxiety about doing this kind of thing and i don't like i think we all had it i I know i certainly did it takes time to get into the groove of these things and and i think you you pretty much nailed it right away it's just like you know we had to kind of sit there and talk about the other stories first like you know like the poe and the fern and stuff and like Mm -hmm. once we got through that and you could sleep on it and stuff, and it was like, it was good. It was perfect. So I, I did include Arctic in my bottom three, but, you know, it was it was still a great start. I was happy that you were able to make some sense of it because I, I had a hard time. So, <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, it's been really great. I, I feel really good that we're, we're a troika now, and we're able to kind of come at things from three different angles. So I, I like that a lot. So 2023 is coming. We hope that you all have an awesome holiday, whatever you are all doing. We will be back in probably early January talking about Octavia E. Butler and her novel Kindred. And it's going to be a great and heavy discussion for certain. But with all that said, again, happy holidays, everyone. See you in 2023.